back for another episode jordan today is february 1st 2021 and i have to admit i'm not i've i've been upset the last few days i'm frustrated (laughs) oh yeah tell me about it well you ever have you ever have you ever screamed into a pillow sure but Me- metaphorically <laughs> no i definitely have yeah <laughs> you scream really loudly but nobody hears nobody you. hears you <laughs> I, i've kind of felt like that because i feel like that it doesn't matter what happens out there in the world that the oligarchy the powers that be this force of nature that's not natural at all is just steamrolling down the it's like a a, a train that's just lost its it's uh, brakes and it's just rolling down the tracks, obliterating everything in its path. And oddly enough, the the thing that kind of set me down this path of personal malaise was seeing, you know, I have this bad habit of looking up government salaries. Oh, okay. Particularly of uh, local people. And of note recently is, is obviously COVID is a big thing. And so in 2019, I probably mentioned this. We've we've probably mentioned this on this podcast, but Utah State epidemiologist Angela Dunn in 2019, which was pre-COVID, and back when nobody even knew who she was, made something like two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars in 2019. In 2020, mm-hmm. which was you might remember, 2020 it was an awful. Economic, <laughs> it was an economic disaster, and it still continues to a be a year that many people have blocked out of their minds. So don't forget 2020 when everything changed. Right, and a year when a lot of people, including people right here in Utah, despite what uh, Spencer Cox might tell you about our economy, which is built on bubbles just like every other economy, but a lot of people right here in Utah lost jobs, uh, couldn't work, were, weren't allowed to work, or were forced to work you know, jobs to deliver people groceries, people like Dr. Angela Dunn. Or their or their businesses lost money. They didn't necessarily, you know, didn't you, do as you, well. you can, if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you work for a smaller company, in some cases you have to make sacrifices. And so it's not just that people lose their jobs, but people lose large uh, proportions of their income. So if you, if you took a 50% hit this year and you still didn't lose your job, that's still not good. Well, even a, even a 10 or 15% it's dramatic. Is is tough with, for with a the small type business. of with the type of uh, money that the medical establishment is extracting from people's income these days, just to stay protected with insurance. You know, with how astronomical the costs there have gone. Yeah, it's well, it's a big deal. Doctor Dunn in two thousand twenty, this difficult year. Okay, how much did she make twenty nineteen? Something like. Two hundred fifty thousand, right I, around there. I, I'm I'm guessing there's like a pay raise in here. <laughs> yeah, a pay raise. So, think about your last raise. It was probably three to five percent. If if your company that you might work for was doing well, Doctor Dunn got a sixty eight thousand dollar raise. 
in 2020. Where are the journalists on this point? I mean, this is news, isn't it? When, when you see your public officials taking these kind of massive increases in pay and the regular Joes getting hosed, isn't that newsworthy? Hasn't that traditionally been newsworthy in America? Like over the last hundred years, is that not the type of Gephardt interest story that you would want to get Gephardt to come investigate every all of you uh, people across the country? We know our our vast myriad of listeners out there in other states. You all have uh, an investigative journalist in your region that does the hard hitting, you know, local muckraking in in Utah. It's a guy named Gephardt. So uh, where is where are those guys? The local press is bought and paid is for. Is laughable. They don't. They haven't asked a difficult question. Teleprompter reading. They haven't. The the guys who attend these press conferences and things haven't asked any hard questions. When I when I used to try to make a habit of watching these these press conferences, they were so absurd and. The press, their questions, almost all of the questions had to do with how will you enforce these measures? They wanted to know if the governor, back then was Herbert, they wanted to know if the state government was going to crack down on those reckless anti-maskers. Were they going to go down to to Blanding, Utah and shut down that cafe that makes people who want to wear masks eat outside and lets the <laughs> mask the anti-mask people the free facers eat inside well that's a real place and a real thing yes <laughs> and all the eight or nine people that were eating there were dramatically affected by that <laughs> right so so you've ranted and raved a little bit here you've vented vented some uh, frustration relative to the news and you expressed earlier to me a couple of days ago that there was a philosophical direction you wanted to take all of this. And I think that uh, you've touched on a lot of important aspects of the front-facing tyranny that where, where there's more transparency that we can, that we can uh, identify. And you wanted to kind of get into a little bit more of the secret or hidden elements of the conspiracy, I think. And uh, so, so just to recap, you hit on the fact that public officials make a heck of a lot of money, first of all, okay, relative right. to the averages in a, in a state. So you've got well, to... And let me just hammer this one last point regarding that. These federal officials make a lot of money while at the same time over the last year making, making sure that a lot of Americans can't earn just a basic living right because we could argue that an executive ought to make a few hundred thousand dollars you know a good executive and some people would say well we want the best executive so we want one that's really expensive and i would say well no there are plenty of people in the hundred to two hundred thousand dollar range that would be great executives even for a large organization such as the state and i would also argue that in the interest of good governance and morality we ought to work at cutting back how big that organization is so it's more manageable and you don't have to have somebody that's really experienced with a with a massive company to to run your your organization but uh you know the point is not that you pay a, a good executive pretty well the point is what about the disparity here what about the in, 
the continually increasing disparity that's going on between the haves and the have-nots, the, the, the administrators and the real world. Neither of us have any problem with somebody making a lot of money, especially when they provide a valuable product or service. But the but in, in this specific, but we're talking case, about public service. Well, you, yeah, and, and in public public service, public service is becoming the most lucrative line of work in the country. I mean, D.C. Washington D.C. is is the largest, fastest growing community in the country because everyone's going to work for the Fed, the federal government, and now these are numbers we're going to have to look up. I think that I read that the Fed, the federal government's the largest employer in the country, I believe. Yeah, I think so. By leaps and bounds. I mean, it employs people in all 50 states, territories, countries under siege. <laughs> By the way, you mentioned Iran being having good reason to feel a little defensive. To have a, have a rationale for imminent threat. Joe, Joe Biden <laughs> said today or over the weekend again today's monday february 1st the joe biden said that iran is on the brink of being able to produce nuclear weapons where where have we heard that before sure well why is why do we get to have nuclear weapons and they don't that's i think a fair question the iranians should ask i mean they don't view themselves as the evil nation they view us as the evil nation i mean this is it's interesting how we're able to get Americans to accept such contradictions in reason. And by the way, book recommendation, I'm not like a huge fan, but uh, there's a great quote out of Atlas Shrugged, uh, Francisco Danconia, the playboy, one of the main characters, he likes to say, contradictions don't exist. Check your premise. So uh, that's a huge contradiction that Iran shouldn't be allowed to have nuclear weapons. Well, the common rationale in America is, well, they'll blow us up if they have nuclear weapons. Okay, that's a possibility, but isn't there a possibility we'll blow them up since we have nuclear weapons? Isn't there a possibility? What makes our morality better than their morality? There's a, there's a song that uh, Sting wrote, uh, it was pol the police, I think, called The Russians, and the whole, the whole uh, chorus is, the Russians love their children too. <laughs> well, there's, a, there's probably a better possibility that we will blow ourselves up but long before Iran blows up anybody. But yeah, we're getting we're gonna get into the, that. It's getting into the weeds. Well, anyway, the other the other tip of the iceberg thing I think that you were talking about earlier was uh, that we have people who have ties to. So not only are they making money when and, and getting raises when, for all intents and purposes, they ought to be making sacrifices. They ought to be saying, "Hey, we know times are tough. I'm going to forego my raise." I'm going to put that back into the state budget and use it for coronavirus protective gear or something like that. You would think that there would be somebody that right. would come out and say something like that because they're making a heck of a lot of money. I'm willing to sacrifice too. And there, there's not that kind of, uh, um, well, doing that of an attitude, doing that would call attention to how much money they're making. Right. But what you have is people like, um, Anthony Fauci, attempting to, behind the scenes, promote uh, a drug like rem remdesivir, and he has ties to Gilead, the company that, that was pushing that, and unf unfortunately for them, it never worked. But if you think he doesn't also have ties to Pfizer and Moderna and all these other people, uh, that's, that's just silly to assume that 
these people don't have under the table relationships or dealings or or the potential for future aggrandizement through these relationships because you know they may not right now but the reason that the revolving door in Washington DC is is talked about so often at least in rational political discussion is because it is a revolving door. They just keep coming in and out and in and out, and then they enrich themselves, and by the end of their career, they're worth $50, $100 million. And it's like, how did this, this guy who started out as a, a, as a congressman or a bureaucrat that was supposed to be a civil servant end up making this kind of money? And so the, the main topic that we're going to talk about today, Bobby, is right out of the Book of Mormon. So for those of you that are Mormons, this should be, well, I guess I have to qualify this and say, for those of you that are practicing and and active, you may run into some issues because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints recently added to the handbook some language that says we need to be careful of baseless conspiracy theories. So those of you that might be concerned about this, I'll remind you of a quote by a famous Mormon, Ezra Taft Benson, in conference where he said, there is no conspiracy theory in the Book of Mormon, only conspiracy fact. And then he recommended that everyone read the book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen. But uh, so if you need permission, there's a, there's a man that served as president of the church. If you need permission to investigate conspiracy theories that aren't baseless, it's okay. You can continue listening to our podcast here. We're going to talk about conspiracy or secret combinations, maybe set a little bit of the stage by discussing some of the events of the Book of Mormon, and then get into recent history. I, I'd really like to spend some time on recent history and make some recommendations for the audience, because if you think $250,000 or $435,000, or whatever Fauci's making, is where these people have their sights set. You are woefully, woefully. Uh, those numbers underestimated. About those numbers are the published wages and salary. It, who knows what what happens under the table? And just like, just like your congressman is owned by, by his donors. You know, uh, Bear Stearns and mega banks and Wall, basically Wall Street. Whoever whoever funded his campaign. And, 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 you know, these big firms in Wall Street fund both sides. We've talked about that. Gary Webb, Allen, Gary Allen. Uh, none dare call it conspiracy? I just said it. <laughs> Who is it? Al- Allen? Gary Allen wrote okay. None Dare Call It Conspiracy. Right. Gary Webb wrote Dark Alliance. And Dark Alliance factors into what, what we want to talk about today. Dark Alliance was an expose written in the late 90s about how the... the uh, CIA was was teamed up with the cartels running drugs in America to finance secret wars around the world. Right. Or not so secret wars, but to secretly finance conflict around the world. And he was suicided. And it rela- he, yeah, he sh- well, he, he, yeah, he was Arkansided. They call that Arkansided because what he did is he killed himself by shooting himself twice in the head. In the back of the head, twice. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people in Arkansas, and we'll get into this, We'll get into the chronology and the, the linked events here in, in a little bit, but a woman named Catherine Austin Fitz wrote an expose on this. Uh, it's called Dylan Reed and Co. Dylan, D-I-L-L-O-N-R-E-A-D-A-N-D-C-O.com. She was 
and investment banker, and she also ended up serving in the Bush and Clinton White House administrations in, in HUD, Housing and Urban Development, okay? And they, she found out where the money was going. <laughs> she started to put some of the pieces together, and she was a very, uh, she is a very scrupulous, ethical person, and so she wasn't willing to go along with some of the illegality going on, and so they tried to put her in jail. And she fought them and won 18 or something different lawsuits. And she kind of figured out where, where all the pieces fit together and wrote this expose. It's an 18-chapter thing. You can probably read it in about half a day if you're a quick reader. I'd recommend taking a little more time to try and understand it. But it is, in my opinion, in my studied but non-credentialed opinion, and, I, and I'll tell you what, they don't give out degrees for conspiracy research, but if they did, I'd have a couple of PhDs, okay? <laughs> well, just I'm, and I'm r- waving my I, arms right now like a stark raving mad lunatic, okay? I, for, I, th- I think that your opinion is researched but baseless. Oh, baseless, okay. <laughs> so the evi- it's, it's evidentiary-based but baseless, and, and it's the- is, theoretical. With this, so, would this URL um, be flagged by Twitter as potentially unsafe? I don't think so. It's so academic. <laughs> That I doubt I'm that being, it's been, and I'm being, I'm being a little facetious. No, but um, I'm serious. It's th- this is so, this is high level enough that, and it's so right. academic that I don't think, I'll bet you it hasn't been flagged yet. But it, for anybody that wants to know what has happened in the United States in the last fifty years, Dylan Reed and Co. In addition to some other uh, supplementary 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 material, is absolutely 100 percent required reading i'm looking at the website right now and in the the subtitle says dylan reed and co incorporated and the aristocracy of stock profits that's super relevant right now given all that's been happening with the stock market recently Mm -hmm. and we'll probably get into that yeah this is important because it seems like we're taking this meandering path uh Bobby and I have the the way our minds work is a little different than other people. You you <laughs> got to pull in a lot of data in an abstract nonlinear fashion, and then you bring it together. It's kind of like looking at you, you've all seen the movies where people uh, in a in a detective crime movie or something Sherlock Holmes or something. They'll the the guy that's trying to figure it out will have a a wall or a map or a peg uh, uh, a cart. Uh, what do they call that? Uh, cork board pit push with a bunch of push pins in it and red lines, red yarn running between pictures. <laughs> That's how our minds work is that we don't have to put it up on the board. It just go, it goes like that. And then you bring it together and you can make sense out of it. And, uh, well, it's, it's kind of strange cause it's not, it's not linear, but at the end, it, when the, when the picture emerges, it's like looking at a hidden picture. Do you remember the, um, those magazines, what were they called in the doctor's offices? I forget. Happenings. Uh, happening. Is that what they were? Where they, the, they had a hidden hidden picture? I think happenings just definitely was in the doctor's office. You're talking about like the dot art that you kind of had to stare at for a minute. No, 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 not the dot art. I'm talking about the hidden picture oh, ones. Oh, like have find a picture, the, find, find the yeah, you find ball, like a find the, you, there's like a wrench, and then there's a yeah. and once you look at it for a while, and you're like, I can't find this. But when you finally see it, you can't unsee it. Right. So. So this is what happens. Like when you see this, a lot of people think that people who research conspiracy are crazy and they're only willing to go so far. They they won't look at very much evidence, but then people who go all the way, they frankly simply cannot 
unsee what they have seen. And there are so many whistleblowers. I had a close relation one time told me, uh, you know, well, if what you're saying is true, there would be all these whistleblowers. And so I started sending them lists of whistleblowers, and they had all been discredited. And this included Catherine Austin Fitz, who was the Undersecretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Bush administration and was making millions of dollars advising the Clinton administration in her, uh, in her spinoff investment bank anal- analyst group called Hamilton Securities. And so she is a credible source, but the problem is she's been discredited, right? So she's, she's a whistleblower. I mean, what about Julian Assange and Edward Snowden? Well, they're discredited to the public. And so what was the name of the woman last year that was, uh, that blew the whistle on Fauci? She was a former colleague. Um, Her name escapes me. Oh yeah. And then they did that documentary, right? Ah, shoot. We got to find her. I'll, I'll make a note. We'll put it on the, uh, we'll put it in the, in the sources while Jordan's area. looking that up I'll just uh we, we're bad at this um we're a half hour in and uh we haven't told you to like comment and subscribe yet but you can find us online at, at mind, mindvirus.show we started out with a big audience and we're steadily declining so <laughs> I think we're doing our job mindvirus.show we make uh we, we we post links and show notes things like that you can find us on your favorite podcast aggregator we're on twitter um, we're still kind of figuring that out. We're on Gab, and um, I haven't done anything on that. Last time I tried, the site was crashing, but that was during all of that that rush to Gab. So we're out there, but the easiest way to find us is mindvirus.show. That's S-H-O-W. And, you know, I really think that we want to get some good engagement here. We'd love to see you people engage with our website because we're putting up the sources. I'm making every page. Bobby's doing the editing. I'm doing the kind of the front-facing website page, and we're att- we're attempting to give you the material to see the hidden picture, to to pop out of the matrix, if you will, and that is a that is a tough uh, thing to contemplate to to red pill yourself, right? Because a lot of people get to that moment where it's like, hey, I have a decision to make. I can either go down this rabbit hole or not. And like I was saying, I I, I presented some of these whistleblowers to this close acquaintance of mine and this person essentially uh took the blue pill they they essentially said well i can't go there they listened to a little bit and they said yeah but discredited and this person and i don't really want to go to in in the end they said well i i really just i can't fathom the types of changes i'd have to make in my life if i actually believed what you believe and they they went ahead and now this person has is sort of coming around because current events keep making it more and more clear. But it's I true; you have to change your mind once you see this stuff. And you, we we talked about this at the end of last week's episode, episode seven, and we talked about repentance. And we think about in religious terms, we think about repentance in 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 you know uh, in the terms of of sins and confessing and stopping your sinful behavior, and that's okay. But it's, it's a much bigger concept than that. Part of that is exactly what you described, is your friend was hesitant to repent, meaning to change his mind, right. and to understand that, that to, to, really, to really understand all this would require him or her to make significant changes in their own lives. You're kind of downplaying it, man, because 
like, I got to say this because the word sin, repentance gets screwed up too. We talked about how it comes from the Latin repoenitentia, which means repunish yourself, which is a bad translation. That's not what it means. And our word penance comes out of that. This is a bigger deal than Bobby's making out because what he's talking about is the point of repentance. It is the point of metanoia. It's to break out of the mind prison. If I had to retranslate the New Testament for the cool kids in, you know, 2021, I might literally, instead of saying repentance, I might use the term break out of the mind prison because you are literally in a prison for your mind here in this world. And it's far more significant than we, than we give it credit for. And the word sin, and this is why I'm taking issue, Bobby. So forgive me here. But the word Run sin, you, you said there, you said, you know, it's okay. Think about it in a religious sense. I say, no, don't think about it in the traditional religious sense because the word sin has also been uh, destroyed. The way, the way you think of sin, if you come from a Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Mormon Orthodox type of a, type of a family, a, a fairly religious family, the idea is there's a list of things that you shouldn't do. Like in the Mormon church, smoking and drinking. Drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, that's on the list. Having sex before you're married, that's on the list. Adultery, that's on the list for everybody. Uh, you know, lying, cheating, stealing. There's all kinds of things that are on the list that if you do these things, you're a bad person. And you've sinned and you need to repent. Now, granted, at a very basic level, at an ethical, moral level, those are, don't do those things. Come on, that's stupid. That you, people sure. who people who are not good people do that. So if you're not a if you're not an evil person, don't do that stuff. But that's not the point. The point is those are mistakes that result from a a, a, a narrow mind, a, a very narrow minded, a, a very selfish, physically focused person. And so the word sin is important because. From the Greek, uh, it's uh, peccata in Latin, and then in Greek, it is hamartia, A-M-A-R-T-I-A, with a rough breathing mark over the A, hamartia. And it literally means to miss the mark. In Greek, in, in Koine Greek, there's an idea, and I, this applies to ancient Greek too, this idea of alpha privative. A is alpha, and if you put an A at the start of a word, not always, but in a lot of cases, it negates what comes next. It's like saying unbelievable or impossible. Um, the un negates the believable. The im negates the possible. It's, it's, a, it's a negative in front of what comes next. And so martia means the mark. It means it's our word martial, like martial arts comes from this. So if you'll imagine yourself with a bow and an arrow attempting to hit a target, if you sin, it is a sin to miss the target. They use that to word honk in archery. Martia. They use that word sin in archery competitions. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they do. Okay, well, that's because that's where it comes from. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing connection because I didn't even know that. But the word means to miss the mark or miss the target. And so it's simply a mistake. That's what sin is. If you're a Greek, if you're, a, if you're somebody walking around, around with Christ and he says, repent of your sins, you were not immediately feeling guilty about having lied to your mother because you ate all the cookies in the Oreo box. That was not, I mean, as a kid, yeah, we make our kids feel bad about stuff like that, but that is not sin. Sin is to see the truth and ignore it, to allow yourself to be co-opted by the mind prison down here in this world 
and and not try to break out of it. That is an error. That is that is a massive cosmic error. And so to to contemplate sin and uh, repentance in in the truest sense is really to wake up to the awful situation in which you find yourself in this world beset by the blood and the sins or the errors of this generation the the blindness of the world the uh joseph smith said that that darkness covers the earth yea gross darkness covers the minds of the people this is doctrine and covenant section 112 it's the darkness that covers the minds of the people that causes our our predicament and and jesus i believe the gods are less concerned about these kids who are taking drugs and, you know, just living it up, whatever. And, and, and if, you've, if you've been in the Mormon culture, you know that that's a big problem for the kids because they're, they're taught to be straight-laced. And, you know, if you don't go on a mission, then you're, you're, you're sort of like checked out of the, the leadership path for the next 10, 20 years or whatever. It's, it's like a big deal. There's a lot of pressure on these kids. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try and help our kids be good and, and live a moral life and try to be, um, you know, avoid some of the foibles of youth. That's, that's a positive thing. But we, we, we load it all up there at that point in life. And then what about the stake presidents that are screwing people, the bishops? The, the, what about the Catholic Church scandal you know, with the pedophile priests? What about we, we cover a multitude of sins that adults engage in, and, and we politely look the other way. We politely look the other way as government rapes and pillages our own people and our own children, taking way more money, wasting it. You know, that's people's life force that's being taken. They, people who have to pay taxes into this, like... Catherine Austin Fitz in the D- Dylan Reed and Company website, dylanreedandco.com, she goes through and talks about how the private prison system got commoditized so that very wealthy people would make more money when, the, when more people were in prison for having done drugs. Th- this happened in the 90s. Mandatory sentencing laws, three strikes and you're out, started to fill up the prison system, and they would make... Twenty-four to thirty-two thousand dollars in extra stock profits, and so she calculates out how how many people had to go to jail um, in order for these Dylan Reed and, and Co. investors, with whom she worked, to make X hundred thousands of dollars. Has anybody asked our new vice president about that? But what's worse is she calculates how many people had to pay the taxes. She said it t- like in some cases it took one hundred and sixty-seven taxpayer lives like their entire life's tax to pay for the stock profits of these people because of the mandatory sentencing okay now are you starting to connect the dots here they passed mandatory sentencing laws for drug nonviolent drug offenders these are people who are taking drugs or getting caught with drugs because remember we had a war on drugs we've had a war on drugs going on meanwhile the government is selling the drugs into the United States. This is Gary Webb, Dark Alliance, 1990s. Right, right. Iran-Contra, late 80s. Okay, the Iran-Contra affair. The government is selling the drugs. They're making money on the prisons. They're making money on the taxes, the services. And they're selling the drugs and making money that way. Then they're laundering the money back into the financial system to make more stock profits. And so this comes full circle to the Wall Street bets, guys, because who wouldn't want to take these 
blankety blanks down. Maybe I mean, I'll add in some beeps. <laughs> yeah, you can add in the bleeps. We we have on our podcast RSS feed that we're a, a family show. We're not explicit, so I can't say the word M F. Well, <laughs> well, this and this this. Not this, that I like to use those words. This stuff that Jordan is talking about. Sorry, now I've ranted. No, good, that's good. It's healthy. It's, it's healthy. healthy. Okay, Hold I'm on, screaming one, into the here, pillow. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Okay, scream. We, need, we should get some pillows in here. But it's interesting that you bring, you bring this up because this is exactly what we've seen recently with the mandatory sentencing, let's use that term, for COVID hospitalizations. And you have this circular right. uh, uh, money. Who this, makes this, the money? Right. Angela Dunn's buddies. Right. Dr. Fauci's buddies. That guy in Health and Human Services is making 600 grand a year. You think that's all he's making? Probably not. He probably well, owns an interest in a hospital. And of course, the hospitals, which are cartels, right? Correct. And, and, and here... The whole medical establishment. In, in Utah... I, I, may, I may post... Uh, you know, I don't know if you think I should, but I may post uh, an article that I've written to our website on the history of the medical establishment. People don't understand where how how the licensing and um state regulations came to be in the early 1900s relative to the american medical establishment well, just think about if it's a cartel it's a monopoly right here in the state of utah we have uh we have a a dominant healthcare provider called intermountain healthcare yeah and they they own they, 51 or 50% they, of the they more or less have a monopoly market. it's over 50% of the market and they, you know they dominate the hospitals and the doctors and the insurance scene here in, in Utah. And I'm sure wherever you live, you've got your dominant uh, uh, forces there. And it's the same. It's the same idea, right? That this idea it goes back to our very first episode when we talked about financing both sides of a war, financing both sides of the king, and or both kings in a war. In this case. You have this merry-go-round where the the money just goes round and round and round, and people take a little bit as they go. Eventually, and I think. <clears throat> all right, let me pause here. Okay. Pausing for dramatic effect. <laughs> By the way, if you're interested in archery, which I have become interested in archery uh, recently, and that's why I knew that. Okay. But uh, there's a there's a guy on YouTube that I I, I found him because I was I wanted to know how to shoot my bow better, and he wrote a book which I have not read. But he's a he's a religious guy, and he in in his videos about how to shoot his bow better, he'll he'll tie in some religious themes. But he wrote a book called called uh, Sin and the Spirituality of Archery, which I thought was a nice kind of play on words when you understand that sin is an archery term for missing the mark as Jordan pointed out and anyway you can look that up if that's you're That's so interested. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's an interesting it's again words words are important. We talk a lot about words and how our language is being manipulated and destroyed and and sin, so that we can be controlled and destroyed right as people. And yeah, the original meaning of sin was just missing the bullseye. You can and and we could we could elaborate on that, but let's let's uh, let's continue on. Okay. Well, what were we talking about? You, I screaming think, screaming into pillows. Screaming into pillows. Okay. So, by the way, the whistleblower who has been discredited that uh, brought to light all of Anthony Fauci's malfeasance 
was Dr. Judy Mikovits or Mikovits, and she was involved in the documentary Plandemic. Right. which everybody should watch. It was it was heavily redacted from the internet by the powers that be. Everybody should watch it. Whether you see the thing the thing that's crazy about uh, these people that are censoring is it's like, well, th- they say, well, we can't have this Im- this misinformation out there as if the truth is already known. And what's the harm in looking at both sides? That's what I'd like to know. If if somebody if it's clearly not true, then it won't bear fruit. It w- it, it will just, you know, on its own lack of merits, it will it will disintegrate. So, what's the harm in looking at the other side? If if we're actually interested in truth, we would want to look at all the all of the allegations so that we can sh- check them off and say, well, that one's clearly false because X Y Z, and this is clearly false because X Y Z. But in in 2020 and and ever since 9/11, especially, and ever since JFK, I mean, going way back, the the powers that be and the the people who control the the media and the public discourse, the people who, who manage the entries and extra exits to the Agora, to the town center, seem to want to ostracize people who have an opinion different, to, different than them because, why? It's not because it's dangerous to truth, it's because it's dangerous to our democracy. It's dangerous, dangerous. to the control it's structure. It's dangerous to them. Yeah, it's dangerous to them. And this kind of starts to get into and, and and Jordan alluded to this how our minds sort of work and and I don't even have a cork board mine is just matter unorganized inside your mind inside my brain <laughs> and I don't have a physical cork board either um, I'm not that organized <clears throat> but what set us down this down this path was uh, especially recently was this idea of personal gain now, personal gain on its face is fine. We all work to make a living, and we all work to, and we all want to make a good living so we can provide for ourselves, our family, maybe even create some generational wealth. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the lengths that people will go to in order to achieve that personal gain. And the, the original story in the Bible kind of the first human story, is Cain and Abel. I think people mistakenly believe that Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's first two kids. I don't think that we know if they were the first or, or not. Well, there's, there, yeah, uh, we, could get into the, we could get into the historicity of the Old Testament, but let's, let's look but, at these stories as if they're more archetypal and uh, laying out symbolic patterns and, and understandings that we need to know relative to the, to the overall conditions here in this world. Because as the temple ceremony in the Mormon church explains, you must consider yourselves respectively, talking to the initiates, you must each, talking to the man and the woman, respectively consider yourselves Adams and Eve. So that right. it says you must consider yourselves respectively Adam and Eve, but I'm trying to make the point. So the story of Cain and Abel gets, it gets kind of morphed or, or misrepresented in, in both religious and secular circles it's often thought that Cain was just jealous of Abel and so he he killed him and I suppose that's true on some level but it's a lot more important a lot more detailed and a lot more specific than that Cain killed Abel because Abel had been favored of the Lord and offered an acceptable sacrifice Cain killed Abel to get personal gain he he conspired 
to commit murder in order to get personal gain. So the Book of Mormon talks a ton about this about this this theme of murder for personal gain and something Jordan talked about earlier. He said he had an acquaintance who didn't want to accept or wasn't quite ready to to change his mind and accept what's happening in the world today. I think that's that's natural. I think that's because none of us wants to believe. It's easy to believe that these types of things happened in days of old and in stories and in movies. It's another thing to believe they're happening right under our noses or right in front of our masked faces. That 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 is to accept that this same the same type of evil that Cain conspired with, which he conspired with the devil to murder his brother, that this same type of evil is happening right now today in our lives among people and institutions that are supposed to protect us and supposed to look after us and supposed to have our best interests at heart. That's a bit that I can understand that. That's a big leap to make. It's easy and it's comfortable to believe that that stuff is the stuff of myth and legend and fairy tales and Bible or movies. Stories. We and see mo- it a lot movies. in the movies. Yeah, the movies love this kind of stuff, and we love those kind of movies, right? The, the cloak and right. dagger type subterfuge right. spy and, movies. And one of the reasons it's so popular is because the powers that be, the people who are are involved in making these shows, they love to make these these really elaborate uh, spy or crime syndicate types of movies. Because they know that once you've seen it in a movie, you'll be reticent to believe that it's actually happening in reality. When in reality, it's far worse, far more complicated, far more intricate, and far more expansive than it than the movies even make it out to be. They know they know that you you look at the movies as fiction, and therefore will attribute those types of ideas to fiction. But remember, the truth is always stranger than fiction. Well, you look at the the media and the movies portrayal of a typical conspiracy theorist uh stranger things comes to mind they find the guy who kind of lives in a in a bunker type home um the two kids find him they go to him and he he ends up you know he's kind of nuts right he's he's in a he wears a bathrobe. He, he mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, he doesn't get out of the yeah. house a lot. A lot of He's times paranoid. The, the conspiracy theorists are always portrayed as crazy people. But. Or strange people. But, and I, I thought this was significant. He's portrayed as a nut, but he's proven in the story to be correct. Right. And actually, spoilers, spoilers. If I'm remembering right, it's a spoiler. He gives his life. Oh, really? Or maybe. Somebody, For the truth's sake? I can't. No, maybe he doesn't. <laughs> Well, sometimes but they do. But he's willing. He puts himself in great danger. Yeah. And I can't remember honestly if he if he lives or not. In well, well, sometimes they do. But, and we we need to. Uh, we'll have to find he, some material. He becomes a. His his nuttiness becomes an endearing thing because he's actually right, and the he was onto the truth the whole time, which was the truth. You know, in Stranger Things, it's it's a government, a vast government conspiracy that is. Uh, uh-huh. Killing regular people. Well, it's like uh, the lone gunman in X Files. Did you ever watch X Files? I did. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. And of course, the lone gunman is funny because it's three guys, but they're a group. They call themselves the lone gunman because it's always a lone gunman and not a conspiracy. And we've talked about this in our 
in right. our uh, podcast before. The origin of the term conspiracy comes from the CIA, from the media, the C- what we'll call the CIA media complex. And I need to find some material to post on our sources page about how the CIA, there, it's, been, it's gone through FO, uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests. The links are documented where the CIA has had legally uh, influenced media in America at multiple points. It's, it's been going on since the 50s. Operation Mockingbird. Yeah, but it, it, it continues on. That people, of course. people will say, "Well, it stopped," and that no, it it continues on, and so they have they have ties to Hollywood. There was a documentary done on this by a couple of stuntmen called Out of Shadows. Uh, Millie Weaver's documentary Shadowgate gets into some of the links, but I have to find some some material to to show you that this is actually happening because pr- probably. The majority of the media, the mainstream media that we have, is influenced by the government at this point. And, and as we've discussed, ha- over half of the Internet is fake. And it's really important to understand that they originated the term conspiracy theory and tried to cast uh, to blanket anyone who questions the public narrative as a conspiracy theorist and make that sound like a crazy term, which they've been very effective at doing in, in media and in, in the public square, when in reality, both of those words are really good ideas. The idea that you need to understand when you're, being, when you're dealing with a conspiracy, a group of one or more people, and if, if it's a theory or a fact, you know, you, that's okay. We, scientists make theories all the time. So, so they've been able to cause people to run screaming the other direction just by saying that word conspiracy theory, which on its face is a really good term. And then you get all of these um, domestic terrorists or, or, or assassins or criminals that end up th- these situations where you have a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald or John Hinckley, who shot... The, the close friend of the Bush family that shot Ronald Reagan 69 days into his presidency. I mean, a lone gunman. He's a crazy man. That, that is so, it's so apt that the writers of X-Files called the, the group of three guys the lone gunman. Yeah, you had, um, <laughs> you had the Vegas shooter. Um, crazy Stephen man. Stephen Paddock, I think, was his name. Yeah. Um, somehow a single guy has... One guy using a, dozens bump, of, a bump stock. Dozens of rifles with bump stocks shoots people at 450 yards away from a hotel window. Um, just a quick side note. I mean, th- if, you, if, you're, if you're hesitant to sort of red pill yourself, look into the Vegas shooting and try to make sense of any oh, of the Oh, the Vegas shooting is insane. There's, it's, it was, I followed that story in the news in real time, you know, when it was, when yeah, it was me fresh. Too. I followed it very closely and I was watching the press conferences and the interviews and it was bizarre because nothing made sense. Nothing. And then one day they were like, and then it just, onto, it just disappeared. It just disappeared. If you don't think the, once the government has the yep. green, once the government has the green light to do something like we talked about, you know, Operation Mockingbird and influencing the media. It doesn't matter if they publicly say they don't do it. They continue to do it. They do not give back right. any of the powers that they steal and they take. And, and they, they know they can get away with it. And all they have to do, all they have to do is issue a, a, a statement uh, like John, John Brennan went, went, in, went uh, in front of Congress during the Edward Snowden aftermath and simply, I have it right. It's John Brennan, right? And he said, we don't spy on Americans. 
And of course, the media reported it. Yeah, well, as l- fact. Well, they they he report- said it. He said it in front of a, a congressional testimony under oath. He said it. Of course, it turned out to be false. He's never had to. He's never had to be held accountable to any of this. That's another thing that got me going this week was not only the salaries, but the fact that none of the people responsible for what we've seen in the last twelve months, let alone the last decades, are ever held accountable. This week, also, you had you had one low-level FBI patsy get a slap on the wrist for the for the whole uh, Russia, 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 impeach, 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 Spygate thing. Right, the, the yeah. complete fabrication of a of a of a scandal that, uh, against Donald Trump, against the sitting president of the United States, from the very beginning of his presidency. That has pretty good evidence that goes all the way to Joe Biden and Barack Obama, who were the vice president and president at the time, the outgoing administration. Nobody is ever held accountable. Yeah, there are there are people that that the Robert Mueller investigation caught in their dragnet that are in jail right now for doing less than this guy who forged the name on the FISA warrant did. And he gets off with 400 hours of community service or something. I don't know. Right. Slap on the wrist. Probation. He'll go play basketball at the YMCA for a couple of weekends and call it good. Yeah. If that. (laughs) Right. His community service will probably be scrubbing the internet of misinformation, (laughs) teaching children about the, the dangers of global warming and sea level rise. I mean, if these people could convince us that if we did not pay them a heck of a lot of money, the sun would not rise tomorrow. They would try to do that. There's a counter uh, movement I've seen on the internet of kind of, uh, I've, I've, I've come up with a term. I hope it catches on the, the free facers, the free face movement. <laughs> the, the free face movement has come up with a counter argument to masks in that, uh, that is that we all need to, to slow the spread of COVID. We all need to wear orange hats because orange hats will slow the spread of COVID. I'm going to pause this there because this batteries are almost dead. So let's take a little break and I'll go get new batteries. Okay. We're going to get back on track here. What the listener won't know is that we just talked. We had to get new batteries in the recorder. And then we ended up talking for like, I don't know how long (laughs) about (laughs) other stuff, other stuff, which we'll talk about that some other time. It was these kind of conversations where, where Jordan and I would, would get together and we'd be on a a porch or we'd go for a walk around the neighborhood. And we, and we kind of thought, what would happen if we recorded these? We would, number one, we would go on the record as being <laughs> whatever it is we are. But uh, anyway, we, we're enjoying doing this. We hope you're enjoying listening to them. We're going to get back on track, which for you, we never get left to track. For you, we look extremely on point and organized. Right. But our theme today and, and some of the things we've been talking about are, and what we, we introduced earlier was the idea of Secret combinations, which today we would call a conspiracy or a uh, syndicate, a criminal syndicate. Uh, deep state is deep, the word that gets state. thrown around a lot these days. The deep state, by the way, is is shallower and shallower. It's becoming just the state at this point. Yeah, almost everybody that works for the state. But like, there's a uh, Bobby's going to tell us a little bit about what is called in the Book of Mormon secret combinations, and. I'll just point out that in Helaman chapter 3, it explains that in, in verse 23, it says, 
In the forty and ninth year of the reign of the judges, there was continual peace established in all the land, save it were the secret combinations which Gadianton the robber had established in the more settled parts of the land, which at that time were not known unto those who were the head of the government. Therefore, they were not destroyed out of the land. So there was peace. Don't misunderstand that. It's not that there was a war going on. He's just making a note that there was a cancer that had entered into their government. For, now, uh, well, I guess I'll take a little bit of a lead here on the secret combination. Yeah, thing. go for it. To see what happened in the Book of Mormon was that these people came over to the New World from Palestine, a guy named Lehi and Nephi and their family. And their families started to flourish, and the family of Lehi split Lehi was the great father, and his son Nephi was the great leader underneath him. But he was a younger brother, and his older brothers took issue with how the younger brother had kind of become the leader. And so there was this this fissure or this uh, chasm between uh, two people that arose from that family. And uh, it, w- it was largely over who had the right to rule, who had the right to teach, who had the right to be the, the thought leaders and the, the... Remember, at this time in the world, it was very common for a, peop- a people to or a nation to have an integrated theocracy. So w- when, we, when we say theocracy, we often misunderstand what that means. It just means that the religious leaders are the secular leaders. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're being ruled by God. It's just that all the all the functions of government are combined into one, and so that's. <laughs> I was, I'm not going to say what you're I was laughing. <laughs> Continue. Okay, so uh, th- when you have a theocracy, which we currently have, <laughs> okay, that's what you were going to say. The government manages all the all these aspects of life. In in American in modern America, the point is they don't want you to know you have a theocracy. They've just changed all the definitions. But in in, in effect, what we have is an an effective theocracy, and the religion is the state. Yeah, that's for sure. That's, but and that's never been more obvious than in maybe the last uh, twelve months. The way that the state the state is making us participate in in religious style rituals. Uh, and and you know the the COVID response is evidence of that, but also even beyond that, just the the doctrines and the dogma that we are required to believe if we want to participate in the agora. The the state is it's an orthodoxy. When you, when you create an orthodoxy like this that governs all aspects of your life, you have a religion. And we have we have a whole episode on the orthodoxy, so go go look that up. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so at the time of Christ the Jews were engaged in a theocracy and the Romans were too. It just never really is looked at that way. But the, the emperor was thought of as being blessed by God to have that position. And he made homage to the Roman gods. The Egyptian Pharaoh was a God King. Right. So we, we don't think of it in these terms because we have created in our minds, these walls of separation between church, state, uh, religion, spirituality, and business, and uh, education, and, you know, all we, we have all these walls built up in, in the modern world, and we somehow, instead of seeing ourselves as, as an integrated spiritual person where our ethos, our ethic, our psyche, our spirit transcends all these divisions, that, that, that somehow different rules apply in different areas, and that's, that's not the case. You can't, you can't outsource to government 
things that you personally can't do to other people. And we've talked about that. I think we talked about that last time or the, or the, the week before. But we, We've talked about that a lot. I also think it's important to note that we, we can't and we shouldn't outsource to the government our own personal development, especially our own spiritual development. Whether you're religious or not, you have a spirit and you have spiritual development. And we're, we're turning over too much of that sort of uh, our intellectual and our spiritual development to the forces and the powers of government. We are relying much too heavily on people like, you know, uh, political leaders and putting uh, putting all of our, our faith— Or school teachers. Uh, yeah, political leaders, school teachers, now medical doctors or medical-type people like Fauci. Uh, we, are, we are allowing them to determine uh, uh, what we— Literally, what we believe. Right. What, what What's what, left for you to think about? Do you get to choose whether you like the uh, Florida Gators or the Florida Seminoles or the the former the team formerly known as the Washington Redskins, uh, which is now just the Washington football team, or the Dallas Cowboys? I mean, what what are the choices left to you if if you farm out your intellectual capacity to these people in a, all these areas of your lives? By the way. As a as a person who grew up in the American West and has ridden horses and owned horses, and as a person with some Nordic uh, uh, ancestry, ancestry, I'm offended at the Vikings and the Cowboys, oh. and I think both should be renamed. Oh, the Dallas football team and the Minnesota football team. Yeah, and also probably okay. the anybody called the Warriors, the Knights, the Spartans. Um, well, as an animal lover, <laughs> I'm offended at names like. Razorbacks, bulldogs, bulldogs, cougars. Yeah. Okay, we're way. We, we, we're okay. Now we're digressing. <laughs> you from understand our digression. the uh, cork okay. board in our brain. Okay. But we we the the point is though that there is an orthodoxy, and it takes on religious religi- religiosity re- religios- <laughs> religiosity in sure. religious terms, and and the new high priests of this state religion are people like. Like Fauci, Angela uh, Dunn, Dunn here locally, Spencer Cox, um, you know, governors. We're, we're we're farming out way too much of our own personal, intellectual, spiritual development, and we're letting these people take our humanity. We're letting these people steal away the one thing that separates us from from any other species on Earth, and that is our intellect and our reason right. and our ability to commune with God. We're we are replacing them. We're place, we are replacing God with them and allowing them to direct our lives in the way that is normally, as children of God, is normally reserved for our relationship with right. God. And, and we can't forget God. the media here. The media are definitely play a role as the high priesthood of, oh, yeah. of uh, what, what reality is for the people. They're, I, I would liken them to almost like the choir. They're singing the praises of the leaders. And uh, also, they're the missionary arm. They're they're out proselytizing yeah. and converting and preaching, repeating, repeating, repeating. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. It's incredibly, it's incredibly dangerous to our democracy. Right. Again, well, we, anyway, we di- okay. So getting digress. back to the theocracy, uh, theocracy. You got to you got to remember when you're looking at these uh, when you're studying history that these people lived in a situation where the those lines weren't as 
There were no lines, almost. There, there, yeah, there were no lines. We we have lines, but they're they're blurred lines, and uh, they're sort of lines in name only, you know. But but what you're getting at, I think, is that back then they didn't pre- even pretend to have the lines. They yeah. accepted the fact that the Pharaoh was was God incarnate. They right. accepted the fact that the king was a divine, a divinely appointed representative of God. Right. It, Exactly. And so you have, okay, so you have Lehi, who, who is the great patriarch, who comes across the, the many waters from the old world to the new world, and his sons, uh, Laman, Lemuel, Nephi, and Sam, they uh, split. Laman and Lemuel go one direction, Nephi and Sam go the other direction. And Nephi was the great leader, the great ship builder, the guy that really gets, gets everything done. Laman and Lemuel want to follow more the pharisaic, what, what becomes known as pharisaical behavior. They were essentially students of uh, what scholars would call the Deuteronomistic rabbis, the people who had changed the religion about 600 BC. And they wanted to maintain this focus on law and f- keeping the statutes and judgments that they perceived Moses had, had laid down in the, uh, what, what later becomes the books of Moses, the, the f- main basis for the Old Testament. So, so there's a huge focus on law and a f- huge, huge focus on who, who has the right to rule. Well, anyway, these two, this family splits into two societies, the, the Nephites, named after Nephi, and the Lamanites, named, named after the older brother, Laman. And they continue to have a theocracy, okay, all the way down until about 90 years before the coming of the Lord, 0 BC. And at that point, there's a king who has several sons, and none of them want to take up the the kingship. And so he institutes a system of judges, and the people essentially enter the realm of self-determination. It's, it's not quite a democracy, but they, the voice of the people um, is what determines who the judges are. And so it's somewhat of a representative democracy, and the judges judge the people based on their laws. And it's sort of regional because different regions have different outcomes, but essentially the same system of judges. And that system even remains a a theocracy because the chief judge is also the high priest for many, many years. So for a while there, you've got a democratic theocracy going on. Well, uh, that's kind of the point I wanted to get to before you start talking about the secret combinations. But the, the issue is that only 20 years into the reign of the judges, you get this episode in Alma. So Alma's the, the next book after Helaman where the, the judges have been established. And before, before Helaman. Sorry, right. Al- Alma is the book after Mosiah right. where the judges have been established. And Helaman's the book where you really start to see the secret combinations uh, play out. Alma is the book where uh, it, it's the, the largest book in the Book of Mormon, and it's also one that you need to look at in, in the most big picture sense because it's so long you forget that it takes only a short period of time, and it contains uh, missionary efforts where the, the Nephites make a reconciliatory attempt with the Lamanites to, to bring their societies together and to bring them Christianity, essentially. And that creates a huge destabilization amongst the people, and then as a result, there are a lot of wars. Well, the wars are the result of essentially a secret criminal syndicate that pops up, and this criminal syndicate pops up only 20 years after the people had had 
freedom established or their their government became a representative democracy so with, with the reign of the judges so that you get to this point there there's uh, a malachiah in alma chapter 46 47 who engages in an attempt to take over the nephite nation and he is kicked out and so he runs to the lamanite nation and uses treachery deceit murder and a false flag terrorist attack to take over the lamanite nation and that's alma alma 47 i believe it's alma 46 okay alma 45 is an info war between a guy named captain moroni and amalekiah and many of you who are lds know about the title of liberty episode that's alma 45 and then alma 46 is where amalekiah uses the false flag terrorist attack and poisons the war leader by degrees and and he um he gains control of the lamanite nation and then starts a war with the nephites and then so so he's really the first of the secret combinations i can't i don't think we can the 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 book of mormon says that the first one was kishkumen and gadianton but i want to point out that amalekiah had a secret criminal syndicate and he was able to cause incredible harm through that through that episode so anyway tell us about secret combinations up and up until probably up until the book of alma the book of mormon is more of a historical kind of spiritual record about first of all you have you have the story of the journey from the old world to the new and then kind of the establishment of the two communities and they have wars and things like that but it, in Alma's, when you really start to get into some political intrigue, really, I mean, I mean there, there's there's secret murders, there's betrayals, there's uh, wars, um, and, high, high drama. And, yeah, and it's a, it would you know it's a it's a great story, and there's some great characters um, like Captain Moroni, who Utah Senator Mike Lee famously compared Donald Trump to during the campaign <laughs> and got some flack here at home for doing that um, and had to calm down a little bit after that. But um, Captain Moroni is a, is a great character. And, and what if you're a liberty-minded person, whether you're LDS or not, you ought to, to learn a little bit about Captain Moroni and, and uh, the title of liberty. But these secret combinations, they, they rise up whether whether you're talking about the Gadiant robbers who were a secret cabal, secret criminal syndicate founded by someone named Gadianton, or whether you're talking about Amalekiah here, the point and the purpose of these secret combinations was the same. It was to gain power, take over the government, In, and gain power by Al taking over the government. Al Alma, yeah, exactly. Alma Alma forty six four says, and Amalekiah was desirous to be a king, and those people who were wroth who were wroth, were also desirous that he should be their king. And they were the greater part of them, the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. So he had his supporters. Right. And he wanted to be king. And so to do that, he participated in these secret actions. So we, we really ought to talk about a little, a little bit more about Amalekai because this is important. What had happened is there was this great missionary effort in the in the Book of Alma. All of, all of this uh, societal change was was occurring, and there was a, a confluence of two two nations that had been relatively separate for 
you know, four or 500 years, then start to come together and bump into each other. They'd become populous. They were, they were filling the land and conflict was inevitable. So the, the missionary effort, the uh, reconciliatory effort by the sons of Mosiah and by Alma was influential in shifting certain segments of the Lamanite and Zoramite populations over to the Nephites and uh, cr- created a dislocation. And so the chief priest, the son of Alma, named Helaman, went, th- there, there was a war. The, the, uh, part, part of the history, <laughs> we're, not, we're not really doing a really coherent job here telling, telling this story, but it, it's, it's super important. It's a, it is a bit of a complicated story, though. Too, it's well, not something that's easily just summarized. I think I think it's it's easy to summarize. We just we did we didn't take a we didn't start out with this in mind. Like sure. sometimes I have to give the beginning of the time beginning of time explanation, and if you start to skip steps, it doesn't make any sense. So, so uh, what happened was that Alma. The there there are two Almas. There's Alma the younger and Alma the elder, and Alma the elder was a was a restorer. He was a man who had found out that the society he was living in was corrupt. His theocracy was led by a man named King Noah, and they totally blew it. They 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 got arrogant and they got ended up getting destroyed by the Lamanites. They were a break off from the main body of the Nephites, and because of Alma's conversion to God by hearing the words of a, of a prophet who they burnt at the stake, whose name was Abinadi, he then becomes this great leader and, est- and reestablishes and reunifies the church of the people of God in the land and brings everybody together back to and, and, and unifies uh, the Nephites who had kind of lost a lot of their unifying integrity at that point in time. And so he, he was essentially the chief priest. And then in the meantime, the, the king from the other segment of the Nephites, his name was Mosiah. He, he had, was the son of a man named Benjamin, who was a great righteous king, also a, the, a theocrat, uh, the leader of the people. But Mosiah, seeing that Alma had greater light and knowledge relative to the things of God, he gives the, the governance of the church over to Alma. And because his sons were so affected by the teachings we're not not by the church it's not it's we're not talking about an institutional church we're talking about religion religion or spirituality at this point conversion to to real to the to the actual reality I, literally alma the elder the uh, or well, not alma the younger Al, not alma the elder alma the younger alma's son has an encounter with a supernatural angel because he he gets off track and he's a special person and he 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 gets uh, a little bit of a uh, come to Jesus meeting with uh, the forces of, of God trying to help him recognize who he really is and who he's supposed to be. And then he devotes his life to, to God too. So, so there's, there's all these things happening, but uh, the sons of King Mosiah, Mosiah being the son of King Benjamin, they, didn't, they, they had been so affected by... Um, <laughs> we're going to have to cut all this out. Going going back to uh, the the sons of um, so we have we have Alma we have Alma the elder who was this this chief priest. It is complicated. <laughs> it is complicated. You have Alma the elder. He's contemporary with Mosiah. He and he establishes the church, and Mosiah establishes the reign of the judges. And they make Alma, they make him 
the the chief priest and the chief judge at the same time, Alma the Elder. Well, his uh, his children were running amok, and so were Mosiah's children running amok. And they were the ones that got converted by the angel appearing to them, saying, you guys are... You guys are not recognizing who you are and the mission you have to perform in this world. You need to repent, break out of the mind prison, change your minds, and get back on track. It's a Paul-esque a Paul, experience. A Paul-esque experience. That's exactly right. So these kids, the, among them are uh, Alma and Aaron and Omner and Himni and Am- Ammon, right? So Alma is the son of Alma, and Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni are the sons of sons of Mosiah. And they, they are so affected by their, exp- their, their spiritual conversion, by their, their epiphanies that they've had, these revelations that they've had. They abdicate the throne, all, all four of the sons of Mosiah abdicate the throne, and they then attempt to reclaim the Lamanites uh, and, and, help the, and help this reconciliation occur amongst the two peoples that have been separated for so many hundreds of years. And Alma, the younger... He, instead of going to the Lamanites, he goes uh, out to the, the people of the Nephites and the people that have broken off of the Nephites, of which is a group called the Zoramites. And what happens is their teachings of uh, the religion or the, the, the religious narrative, which essentially is a, a foreshadowing of Christianity, has such an effect amongst the people that it breaks both the Zoramites in half and the Lamanites in half, and and these, there's these huge population flows, and many, many people come to join the Nephite nation. Well, Alma chapters uh, 43 and 44 describe how the Zoramites were upset that they had lost their lower class, and they, a man, a man named Zarahemna, leads them in a war against the Nephites, and they are handily defeated, in, a, in this war against the Nephites. But out of that, um, we have dissension arising amongst the Nephites. Out of all of this, all of this flux going on in the world, the, uh, in, in the Nephite and Lamanite world, the, their traditional order of, of governments, remember it's a theocracy and then becomes a representative theocracy and then becomes secularized as the the influence of the of the chief high priest is lost on the on the public and they no longer vote him in as the the chief judge and so so Helaman who's the son of Alma the younger by Alma chapter 45 he has to go out and and the record says that he made a regulation amongst the church so amongst the believers at that time as the society is becoming more secularized he uh he goes out and tries to organize and and make consistent the society of of people who believed because he, at this point we have a huge population and they're interacting and so they have they have a uh, a culture they have a they have a large society like we have today where there's people everywhere and you can't just run away which is what the early nephites were able to do they were able to just leave and get away from other people and go practice their their um religion and their lives the way that they wanted to and so we kind of have that same situation here in America where you, there's no free country in, in the world today. There's no country that you can f- flee to, no frontier that you can escape to, to practice, um, 
your life uh, and your religion and your and your commerce or whatever your your politics however whatever it is you want to do you can't set it up the way you want you have to deal with the the society that currently exists and so Helaman and his brethren at the end of 45 they go forth to establish again the church the ecclesia the um the congregation of believers believers to strengthen it again in all the land and in every city throughout the land that was possessed by the people of Nephi. And they appointed priests and teachers throughout the land over all of these gatherings. And after they'd appointed priests and teachers, there arose a dissension amongst those that didn't want to give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. So what was it? Were they rejecting the religion? No, they weren't rejecting the religion. The dissension was over the fact that he had instituted a leadership that was um, displacing those who had been able to gain power and gain, remember, we're coming back to power and gain. This is all about control, power, control over the minds of the people, control over the resources of the people. A king without a kingdom, a king without subjects is, is nothing at all. He has to have people to control, otherwise it's no fun in his kingdom. So they didn't want to listen to Helaman, and they grew proud and lifted up in their hearts, and because of their exceedingly great riches, they grew rich in their own rise, in their own eyes, and they wouldn't give heed to Helaman's words or his organization. And then you get to this point that Bobby was just talking about, where Amalekiah shows up on the scene, Alma chapter 46, a large and a strong man. His name's Amalekiah. He was desirous to be king, and those who were wroth were desirous that he should be their king also. And they were the greater part of the lower judges of the land who were seeking for power. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? Is there's a chapter break. And Mormons are really good at reading one chapter a day and we'd miss what happened previously. And so you don't recognize the geopolitical forces that caused there to be a dissension in the land. It was because someone restructured the power structure and they, the, the people who were losing power didn't like it. Perhaps they had amassed to them a great deal of power and and perhaps Helaman said, no, no, you can't act like that. You got you to gotta allow people their natural rights and you got to allow them their own decisions. And, and we, can't, we can't just do these things that aggrandize and enrich you and the other lower judges of the land. And so then Amalekiah starts uh, a campaign to become king of the Nephites. He's like, well, there's an easy fix to this and that's to give me all the power. And if you guys are on board, we've got this momentum. And, and he runs into... In, in Alma chapter 46, he runs into a man named Captain Moroni. And Captain Moroni raises uh, what we call the title of liberty, which was a, essentially a marketing campaign for truth and freedom and uh, tr traditional uh, Nephite values. And, Neph and Moroni wins the information war and chases Amalekiah out of the land. And then Amalekiah, through treachery, deceit, intrigue, murder, and a false flag terrorist attack, he gains control of the Lamanite nation. And that's a very concise <laughs> overview of what happens in the book of Alma and, and, what, and, and where, the, where the Nephite political uh, situation had been since the beginning of the, of the nation in 600 BC. It's the largest book in the Book of Mormon by pages like it's big yeah. it's a big thick book and there's a lot that happens in it so that was a pretty good con <laughs> somewhat concise <laughs> um, I think a couple things are interesting about Amalekiah we, we talked about one how he was he was desirous to be the king and the people his greatest supporters were the lower judges of the land so basically he had control of the political class 
what we might today call the political class. Yeah, perhaps the media class too, the, right. the, the people that had the voice, because that's what the judges would do. They'd have the voice. They'd get to say what goes. He also, it also uh, points out that they, meaning the people who supported Amalekiah, had been led by the flatteries of Amalekiah. And if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. So he said, you put me in as king, you will also share in that glory and that power. He was probably lying. No, I think that you every king needs that but infrastructure. Yeah, he was going to have that infrastructure, those lower judges. It doesn't mean that they'll get as much as they want. Right. right. But but this is exactly what's ha- that's that's exactly what we have is mid-level managers uh, who are incentivized. It's the sheriff of Nottingham stuff. Exactly. Pe- they're these petty tyrants who who rule their small little their small little domain fiefdom. Yeah. With absolute iron fist you see it all the time in like the sheriff of nottingham you, you've seen it in other pop culture and movies where you have some m- mid-level manager you see it in corporate america some mid-level manager you see it in government bureaucracy right even even uh governors themselves i think could be kind of considered the lower uh, judges of the, the lower land. judges of the land yeah so thus they were led away by amalekiah to dissensions notwithstanding the preaching of helaman and his brethren, and uh, these... Read that whole thing again, verse 6. So, thus they were led away by Amalekiah to dissensions, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church. See, I would have read that. For they were high priests over the church. See, they had just displaced all the people who purported to be the high priests and that were gaining influence. Because remember, you've got a a theocracy here that's starting to become secularized. And the the religion, the, the spiritual leaders are losing influence while other people like Amalekiah are coming in and gaining influence. Okay, so why are we talking about this? Because this is, the, this is the beginning of the secret combination episode in the Book of Mormon, and Amalekiah engages in what would be classically termed in law as conspiracy. This right. is a factual issue here. He conspired with other men. A conspiracy is, one, is two or more people banding together to perform some sort of an act, generally a nefarious act, one that goes against the established customs or laws, of, of a people. That's a conspiracy. And this is not a, a theory. This is a conspiracy fact. And we have explicit record of it because at that time, Amalekiah wasn't attempting to be secret. He attempted by open campaign to influence the flattery. people, flattery, trying to get Promises. them. He was yeah. running for office. He was essentially, sense. it's essentially a political campaign. What you see later with Gadianton and Kishkumen is they then decide we have, what we have in, in the Nephite nation is a bureaucracy that has developed. We will take it over through secret means, through surreptitious, nefarious, uh, quiet political wrangling behind the scenes, and we will entrench ourselves so deeply that the, uh, there's no way out of it. It's, it's worth noting, too, that in this political campaign that Amalekiah waged, the, the counter-argument... That, ca- that Captain Moroni made was founded on liberty. And Captain Moroni understood liberty in its 
in its true sense, not in the way we talk about it today, where liberty just means the party that I voted for is in power. He understood what liberty was, and, and liberty was the argument that forced Amalekiah out. And I think that's important to note. Right, he, re- he rends his coat, he writes on it, on his, on his cloak or whatever, he, he writes on it, in memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives, and our children. And then he fastens it on the end of a pole, and he calls this the title of liberty. And the point was to remind people who they were and that they had been free. It says in 46.28 that Moroni, when Moroni had said these words, meaning the title of liberty, he went forth and also sent forth in all the parts of the land where there were dissensions, so all these areas where Malachi had caused trouble, and gathered together all the people who were desirous to maintain their liberty to stand against Amalekiah and those who had dissented, who were called Amalekiahites. Amalekiahites. Good. So what did so he, he he waged his own political campaign and he gathered all of the liberty-minded people who wanted to preserve their freedom and their liberty and their way of life. Mm-hmm. In the in the in the face of something that was very obviously going to steal that away from them, right? And remember, the issue here is not monarchy. The issue here is a Malachiah. Uh, the Nephites had come from a tradition of monarchy, and they had been dealing with righteous kings. In fact, the people loved Nephi, the first the first uh, leader. He didn't want to be made king, but the people made him a king, and then they started to call the kings Nephi because they loved Nephi so much because he was such a righteous king. If you have a righteous king, you have a righteous kingdom. You have a happy kingdom. This is like, this is why Egypt persisted for so long because they had such continuity of the people and the pharaohs and uh, you didn't have, I I know at times they had, um, they went through periods of of tumult and then restoration of continuity because I'm sure because of uh, bad leadership. But when you have a righteous king, the people thrive, and they don't necessarily feel like they're not free. Under a righteous king, under a King Arthur type of a thing, the people are free and liberated, and they, they are not being oppressed. And so that king is essentially the arbiter of, of the disputes, the final arbiter, and the people live in a, hap- in a happy way. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing. We've been raised in um, modern society to think that having a, a king is a bad, uh, is a bad thing. In the end, what we all hope for is, is the kingdom of God to come where Jesus is the ultimate judge and we can all live free under his righteous rule. And so when, when he says in memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives and our children, he's, he's only 20 years into the reign of the judges and he's saying, remember the great goodness of Mosiah and the goodness of King Benjamin and those that went before when they had righteous kings as they lived as free people and we don't need to give up our autonomy to uh, someone as oppressive as an Amalekiah and his syndicate of people. Yeah, and that's that's super important. The, it's the 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 ruler or the king or the government. The style of that isn't isn't necessarily important. The type of government that somebody has isn't necessarily important. What's important is, does that government recognize and protect the liberty and the freedom of the people? people? And so kings could do that. Uh, Emperors can do that. And an elected, you know, president can do Mm -hmm. that. 
a, a monarchy is just easy to co-opt because the king has the ultimate authority. Right. So you can get one bad guy and he comes in and upsets the apple cart for everybody. Well, anyway, so Moroni wins the information war. He chases Amalekiah out of the land and those who are with him have to flee to the Lamanite nation. I think it's, again, there's just these, these little details that I think add a lot, of, a lot of depth to the story. When he was being chased out, one of the reasons he left was that he, Amalekiah, saw that the people that had followed him were doubtful concerning the justice of the cause in which they had undertaken. Yeah, that's important. I, I think of all the modern equivalents to that and all of these things that are so shoved in our faces, these causes and these things, and, and they don't move the hearts and minds of the people. Climate change comes to mind. <laughs> How many people have, are doubting the justice of the cause of climate change, for example? And, and climate change is coming right back at us on the heels of this COVID stuff. They're starting to say like, COVID, the COVID shutdowns reduced emissions. That's what we need to do with, with climate change. I think it was Klaus Schwab, our favorite comic book villain said that we need to live as if we are in perpetual lockdowns to reduce carbon emissions. Anyway, I'm getting off track, but no, but this, this has total application to our day. And we need to, we need to point that out. Like we're going to see in Alma chapter 47 here that Amalekiah flees. He tries to take the army with him and, and Moroni stops him. He cuts the army off and Amalekiah with a small band, his, he call him his servants, his criminal syndicate. They escape to the Lamanite nation. And what he does is he goes into the Lamanite nation and he flatters the king of the Lamanites. It says in verse four, now Amalekiah being a very subtle man to do evil, therefore he laid pl the plan in his heart to dethrone the king of the Lamanites. And here's how he did it. He went in, um, to the king and gained favor with the king and got command of those parts of the Lamanites that were in favor of the king. And he tried to get the Lamanites to go to war against the, the Nephites, but the Lamanites were resistant. They didn't want to go to war. In fact, they had been at war with the, the Nephites recently and they got beaten. And so they were essentially war weary. And so the more part of the Lamanite army did not want to, um, to join Amalekiah, and they were led by a man named Lehanti. Real quick, before we move okay. on from Captain Moroni and the title of Liberty, um, Moroni caused, he, Moroni had the title of Liberty put to be dis, uh, hoisted. It says that he, he Cause the title of liberty to be hoisted upon every tower which is in all the land, which was possessed by the Nephites. That's like running it on the television, putting it on social media. And <clears throat> I, I was thinking about what would happen today if, if we took the words of the title of liberty and they were hoisted throughout the land. We would be labeled as... French domestic, crazy people, domestic, domestic terrorists, terrorists. Yeah. like like talking about liberty and freedom. Because right and now, God. right now, those things to, to to be a liberty oriented person, to be somebody who says the government is an evil criminal syndicate, is to be a domestic terrorist, and to be at least labeled as such. And I think in the coming weeks and years of the Biden presidency, we are going to see. Uh, what what the media is going to call right wing militia groups and uh, uh, extremists, 
and white supremacists and white nationalists, they're always going to be white, <laughs> are going to be punished. Even, they're full of, even though they're full of minorities, they're, they're all white. They're going to be punished. They're going to be made examples of. Whether that gets violent or not, I don't know. I hope it doesn't. But this isn't new either. This isn't new. Uh, Democrat presidents especially love to find their militiamen out there in the in the woods. We've talked about Ruby Ridge. Um, of course, Waco is a great example. Um, one that kind of flies under the radar is the Oregon Yeah, the Maller, Maller Wildlife Refuge, refuge. thing when Lavoie Finnicum was shot in an ambush. Um, that That's something that all LDS people should be uh, informed on, properly informed of the truth, because right. the, many of the people involved were LDS. That also stemmed from some of the other what's been called as the sagebrush rebellion kind of this uh, this this whole issue of grazing rights and the western Bureau, Bureau of land management yeah. it's a big deal if you live out here and it's important the point is though that people who people who value liberty and personal autonomy and who talk about that are going to be villainized they already are look at january 6th right january 6th has right. been co-opted we've by, talked about that a lot got co-opted by weirdos and press and i think it was all a setup completely mischaracterized what actually happened anyway the reason we're talking about all of this and and drawing these parallels is that the book of mormon is explicitly stated that it is it is for us it's a voice of of warning and instruction for us in this time period we can ask ourselves why why is there so much, why is the thickest book in the Book of Mormon all about political intrigue and war and secret combinations? And the answer is because he saw our day and he saw that we would also be mired in war and subterfuge and political intrigue and and secret, secret combinations. combinations. Criminal syndicates attempting to take over your government. So the question is the question isn't, do these things exist? Do these criminal syndicates exist? The question is, who are they? And do they have power over us? Right. So watch the pattern here in Amalekiah, because he gives the same speech at the end of Alma chapter 47 that George Bush gave in 2001, right after 9-11. Okay? Amalekiah was, had gained uh, leadership by flattery of a small portion of the Lamanite armies because the king wanted to go to war and you know but most of the people didn't and so the the armies fled to the top of a mountain and they were led by a guy named Lehanti and the king says to Amalekiah okay go see if you can get those guys back come on we didn't want to cause this huge problem but he, he's still been flattered by Amalekiah and Amalekiah has uh, uh, great great pull with the king he's he's been very effective at inserting himself at a high level in the in the Lamanite government. Well, anyway, Amalekiah understands how the leadership structure works in the Lamanite nation and, and in, the, in the world at large at that time. Because you see, it was their tradition that if the leader of the army was killed, that the guy that was second in command would automatically become the leader. Now, do we have a modern parallel there, Bobby? In America, if the president is killed, <laughs> who takes charge immediately? 
Well, the, the vice president. That's second in command, right? So the same the same thing happens in the United States, and the, and, the, and of course the in in the United States the president is considered the commander in chief or the chief commander of the armies. So when he dies, his second command takes takes charge. Well, um, here's what happens. So Lehanti has fled with the armies to uh, the top of a high mountain, and Amalekiah tries to get him to come down to talk, and Lehanti's not having any of that. And so Amalekiah says, well, let's meet halfway on the, on the mountainside, and Lahanti won't do that. And so Amalekiah is willing to go by night, by himself, right up to the edge of, the, the, of Lehanti's main army camp and meet with Lahanti in secret. And he says, look, you know, that, all that stuff with the king, I'm not really that into that anymore. Um, I don't want to fight the, the Nephites. I don't know what he says to Lahanti, but he convinces him, look, you're, you're a better leader here. Why don't you take command you be the main leader let's merge the armies you be the main leader and i'll be second in command (laughs) okay well anybody with half a brain is right now at that point where you know you're in a horror movie and you're like turn around don't don't go downstairs don't go out to the barn at night to check out that noise it's like you, you want to yell at the, the characters in this book and say, don't you know who you're dealing with, Amalekiah here? Don't make him second in command. Well, Lehanti, for some reason, is flattered by Amalekiah and thinks, okay, this is, this is innocuous. Yeah, I'll, I'm a good leader. I'll take charge of this. Amalekiah can learn while he's in my tutelage, you know. Forgets the one very important uh, tidbit that makes this whole thing work. And that is that it was their custom that if the main leader died, second in command would take over. And the story goes on to say that, well, Amalekiah had his servants poison Lehanti by degrees and Lehanti dies. And so he becomes the main leader by default through succession of the Lamanite armies. And then he's now accomplished his goal of, of, of being the main leader of the armies. The army thinks this is just normal. You know, they're like, well, maybe some of them are scratching their head. But, uh, I mean, you'd, <laughs> the conspiracy theorists are like, well, Lehanti was pretty healthy when we were on top of the mountain. What happened, you know? Anyway, you got to wonder uh, who, who some of the, the thinkers were in these, in these stories. Amalekiah brings the entire army back to the Lamanites' main city, and the king, seeing that uh, the armies are unified, and, and he's excited. He brings his servants out of the city to greet the armies, as was their custom, and he raises his arm in greeting. And, of course, this was all pre-planned because Amalekiah's servants were sent ahead. Not Amalekiah. Amalekiah stays with the army. He maintains what we would call plausible deniability. Okay? He sends his servants ahead, and when the king raises his arms to greet the servants of Amalekiah, they stab the king, and of course, everyone's jaw drops because the servants of Amalekiah have just killed the king. That makes no sense at all. And the servants of the king are looking around going, what the heck? And the guy that stabs the king stands up immediately, and the other servants say, the servants of the king have killed the king. So they immediately blame their actions on somebody else. That is, by definition, in military studies, called a false flag attack. When you attack someone else and blame it on somebody different than you, that's a false flag attack. It it was a practice in naval warfare quite often uh, after the Renaissance in that, uh, I guess it probably happened even before that, but most common, you know, in the 16, 17, 1800s where uh, a ship, 
a, a man of war, a, a, a frigate or something would would raise the flag of an enemy and then attack somebody to blame it on this enemy so they could get people fighting, right? Or they would, they would, they would, they would shoot their cannons off at a port city and they'd be flying the flag. You know, the French would fly the flag of the British or vice versa, and it caused all kinds of problems because people began to was, hate each other. It, it, it was a, that was a... That's a, a common tactic. It was, it was common, and it was also a, a serious offense because back then that was the only way you could know who was who was their, their flags. Right. Only the really evil people do this. And so, uh, you know, you might be flying the flag of the, uh, uh, what's the trading company, the famous? The British uh, East India Company. Yeah, you might be flying that flag. And so someone would see that and say, that, and know that that's a merchant ship and not a threat. Yeah. Or it's a, they would fly that flag and know that they're a merchant ship and therefore a target if you were a pirate. Yeah. But the point is that... This is really important to understand this deception. We've ha- and false flags continue to this day. One famous one is the Bay of Pigs, which uh, we could go into. But the the point is, it, it it happens, it happens today. It happens a lot. I think, and I've touched on this. I think a new kind of modern technology, technological false flag are deep fakes, where they're going to they can create people, world leaders world terrorists, whatever, they can create fake people or fake versions of real people to say anything they want. Right. And that can be a, ver- a version of a false flag yeah, as well. The most recent false flag was on January 6, 2021, when uh, a cadre of four organized groups of about 100 men, um, f- they foreran or ran in front of the pro the the big rally protest. They were servants of the king sent forth ahead of time. They they then fomented a fight with the capital police and then vandalized the uh, broke into the uh, to the capital and blamed it on a bunch of conservative Republicans or conservative Donald Trump supporters or whatever. That was a false flag attack. We we have linked to before, but we'll link to again a primary source account of a of a guy named Waller, who is a political scientist slash uh, military professor, teaches at the Washington, D.C. Uh, Postgraduate Naval Academy on, on propaganda, uh, protests, and political warfare. And he was there, and he wrote down his account of what happened, and he is very clear. He doesn't try to tell you exactly, but when you read it, you realize this was a false flag attack. This was an attempt to make a lot of people look bad. And when you see how the media characterized it, that's exactly well, what happened. It's interesting. So we'll link the, to it again. There's another. There's more parallels here with Amalekiah. So Amalekiah sent his serv- servants forth to murder the king. Right. And it says that when Amalekiah had, had seen what happened to the king, and he found the king lying in his gore, Amalekiah pretended to be wroth and said, Whosoever loved the king, let him go forth and pursue his servants that they may be slain. This is exactly what happened post-January 6th with the media. Yes. Even, even uh, Joe Biden in his inaugural speech, they said basically, those of you who love this institution, who love this hallowed sacred ground of the Capitol and who value democracy and the peaceful transition of power, will support us in our upcoming war on domestic terrorism to punish the people who carried out this this vile right. attack on now, our sacred 
sacred institution. Th- this may not come as a surprise to all of our read- our listeners, but this might be a surprise to some of you. And I want to explain that w- far worse. Well, we don't know what the ramifications are yet of of this uh, Joe Biden Amalekiah speech, but in in September of 2001, George Bush gave the same speech. He said, if you love your king and if you love your country, you will go after these terrorists and any nation that harbors them. That's what happened right after 9-11 is George Bush gave the Amalekiah speech and that's that's exactly what Amalekiah said. You'll go get those those people, those terrorists. Remember, the word was servants of the king, but it's, he's, he's literally calling them the terrorists, accusing them of murder. And they fled to the Nephite lands, to the, to the land Jershon. And so the very next thing that happens is Amalekiah goes back to the Lamanite nation. He woos the queen. Oh, I'm so sorry. Your husband was killed by these terrorists. You know, he becomes king and then he puts men on the towers because the Lamanites still don't want to go to war. He puts men on the towers. He starts to control their media apparatus, their news media, corporate media, and incites these people to violence against the Nephites where the terrorists were living, where the the nations that, the, that had received the terrorists. That is exactly what happened in 2001 when we were told that Arab terrorists knocked down the three buildings, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7, with two airplanes. And we were supposed to invade uh, Afghanistan and Iraq because of their ties to to these terrorist organizations. Now remember, this was all perpetrated by Amalekiah via a false flag attack. A false flag and also a lot of cunning, flattery, it's clear that Amalekiah was a smart, intelligent person. He was planning mm-hmm. this. He was he was exploiting the people, and he he it, he the the text says that by his fraud he gained the hearts of the people. The hearts that's important, and that happens. That's happening in our day. Um, we talked earlier about how government is, has become the religion and the state has become religion and the way that the media kind of kind of cheers that on and preaches the gospel of statism. You have people who talk about, and this goes on both sides, Republican and Democrat, who talk about their political leaders in religious terms, and it's clear that by their fraud, they have captured the hearts of the people. Because let us be clear, it doesn't matter what party you belong to, most most of these people are knowingly participating in fraud. Most of them in Congress and in government, and of course in the deep state. Now there are good, honest people that work for the government in whatever capacity. But those who are moving and shaking this apparatus are participating in fraud. Um, right. we, even, even from, <clears throat> even just, uh, li- I, I say little things, even though they're, they're crimes, but, you know, s- selling, uh, selling stocks in, in travel and hospitality two days before the market crashed in the, in the spring in the COVID crash or, Oh, they had no knowledge of that. Or, that was just their, their financial plan. And those who that. shorted, 
airline stocks right before 9-11, they didn't have any... Just their financial planners. Right? That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, who are the financial planners? Exactly. That's what we're <laughs> going to talk about when we get to Catherine Austin Fitz and Dylan Reed and Co. Oh, yeah. You might okay. remember when we talked about that 17 hours ago. Yeah, but, but this is this is so important. If you if you can stick with us, you're going to understand we might, what happened in the last 40 years in America. We might have to split this episode, but... Who cares? We'll let's see. keep talking. Let's go. Okay. Let's see. We'll see what kind of fallout we have from this. Anyway, the... What happens after Amalekiah gets control of the Lamanite nation is that he incites them to violence. Now, remember, <laughs> well, he says we got to go chase the servants that killed the king. Right, and that, and 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 literally, what we saw in America is we have the same people that are inciting us to violence are accusing us of inciting other people to violence. Right, it's a false flag. It's a it's a it's a massive deception. Well, it's a simple deception too. We we should. I think a lot of people are seeing through this, which is why the violence is, is likely because you got to have two sides to have a war, you know? So they're creating both sides here. The, but, this, this is an interesting uh, verse. The, the last verse of Alma 47, verse 36. Um, you, you have the editor inserting himself. <laughs> he's, he's editorializing. This is Mormon at this point. Editora, editora, editorializing. <laughs> editorializing. He says, because Mormon, Mormon who, the reason the Book of Mormon is called the Book of Mormon is because Mormon compiled these records. He was, a, he was an editor. He took a whole bunch of records and he, he assembled them and he made decisions based on his own, uh, Based on himself and based on revelation and based yeah. on 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 practicality. Remember these a lot of these some of these were metal plates that he had. Some of them were probably written on scrolls and parchments and whatever. Anyway, he took. He's the most underrated guy in the Book of Mormon. He's a he compiles the record. He says I only put in the hundredth part. Right. And he put in what was relevant for us. So he had incredible insight. He's a scholar, a linguist, a, a Nephite general. He had great respect for this guy, Captain Moroni, in chapter 46. He even names his son Moroni, but he doesn't really ever tell you much about himself, except that he had this this monstrous task of putting together the record and putting in it the things that would be the most important for who? Us, Bobby. <laughs> Us. And and what I was bringing up, and, and I, I... So he says that he kind of... He's kind of wrapping up the story of Amalekiah a little bit here. And Amalekiah must have been cunning, because he... Right in the wake... I bet he was good-looking, in too. The, in the wake of her husband's death, having caused her husband's death, he marries the queen. But... Among the dissenters, so Mormon, Mormon's kind of summarizing, and he says there's all these cunning events, and he obtained the kingdom, and he was acknowledged king throughout all the land among all the people of the Lamanites who were composed of Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites, and the dissenters of the Nephites. And he says, now these dissenters, meaning the Nephite dissenters, having the same instruction and the same information of the Nephites, meaning these were people who knew the truth who understood liberty, who were enlightened people, who were God-fearing right, that, religious that's people. That's one thing we forgot to point out is that the, the Nephites, through that 600-year period prior to Christ, they were the ones that kept the language more and, and, the, and the learning up more uh, as a part of their society, teaching and, and language right. and commerce. And, they and kept the, the traditions of Nephi and Lehi, and, Father and, Lehi. And learning. And so the Lamanites had sort of devolved into a more uh, hunter-gatherer type of a society. But he says... They were the ones who had been instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord. He said, and this is what I'm getting. He says, nevertheless, it is strange to relate 
that not long after their dissensions, they became more hardened and impenitent and more wild, wicked, and ferocious than the Lamanites, drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to indolence and all manner of lasciviousness, yea, entirely forgetting the Lord their God. I just think that little detail, again, there's so many little details that Mormon puts in here. It is strange to relate. What things that we see today are so strange to relate? I mean, there's nothing that isn't strange to relate. Bobby, it's strange to relate that there's a a huge segment of uh, popular culture that thinks that changing your gender makes sense, even to the point of having an operation. It's, It's strange to relate that that gender itself is becoming de-scienced. Scienceified. <laughs> it's becoming a, a construct, a it, social it, construct. It's, it's no longer something that happens at your birth, but something you choose later. It is strange to relate that millions upon millions of people think that somehow wearing a cloth covering protects you from viruses, even though for the last hundred years that was generally accepted as not actually working. There's a lot that is strange, strange to relate. It's strange to relate that despite billions dead, that socialism and communism is still a, an equal, an an equal and effective path to to prosperity. That, that somehow, in in polite society in America, is viewed as a possible uh, path to take, as a as a legitimate way to form a government, a, a legitimate. Thing to foist upon society. And I also think it's strange to relate that here in the United States, a nation that still still likes to think that it was found, that, that, that we understand liberty. It was a nation founded on liberty, specifically religious liberty. It's strange to relate that we are so willing and eager to give away our liberty. The thing, The very thing that people have fought for for centuries and generations the very thing that made us rich the thing that made us prosperous the thing that that made us happy the thing that made us free we are clapping as we watch its slow motion controlled demolition which we've talked about this controlled demolition of our way of life of our society because we are being flattered by people like joe biden and anthony fauci and news people They'll flatter the right people, but if you're not, you're being insulted by these people, and yet you clap for this, and you put on your mask, you avoid your friends and family, (laughs) and you somehow, for some reason, and I don't mean you individual listener, we, as a society, are allowing ourselves to be taken over, to be, and to fall for the lie, these flattering lies of cunning evil people who are telling us that the servants of the king just murdered the king. Yeah, you got to think there were guys in the Lamanite army that were like, that's strange. The king, the king's servants, why would they do that here? Why wouldn't they have done it inside the... And why? And I well, know there those were guys. They didn't want to kill the king. There were people who witnessed this murder who knew that the murderers were not the servants of the king. Yeah. And yet we do the same thing. But see, this thing. is this is why you have to incite the the crowd to action, like Amalekiah did, like George Bush did, like Joe Biden did. W- when they get you wearing the masks, it's harder to come back from it because you're now complicit 
in the in the sin, in the error, in the hamartia, and having missed the mark. It's hard to admit when we we miss the mark and when we need to change our minds. So what he does is he says, all of you, he knows that it's a lost cause. He knows the servants are going to get away. But he says, all of you men here, if you love your king and country, prove it by taking action. And once you have somebody take action on a false premise, and remember, contradictions don't exist. Check your premise. But once you get people to take action on a false premise, they become committed to the lie. That's how they do it. They need you to participate so that you are you are dirtied, so your mind is dirtied, and so that you become a supporter of their of their program. And then it, it becomes very strange to relate. This is why he says it's strange to relate. It's strange to relate that they became more hardened and impenitent and more wild and wicked. Well, that's because they gave themselves over to this these false premises, to these to these ideas. I've wondered recently who who will be the leader, the political leader, the religious leader, the corporate leader, who will be the person with a significant voice who will finally call out the lie, this COVID lie, and say, we aren't going to go along anymore. You might make the argument that DeSantis in Florida has done that. Well, a lot of people thought that was going to be Trump. Right. I think Trump kind of tried early on, but, but the media is so he powerful. got hammered and he gave up. He just gave up on, on that front. Well, anyway, so Amalekiah gains control of the Lamanite armies. He incites the nation to violence against the Nephites by, by uh, enraging them against the, the terrorists and any nation that harbors them. And uh, I'm using those words because that's a direct quote from George Bush. If you're you don't with us remember, or you're with the terrorists. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists, and we're, we've got to go after the terrorists and any nation that harbors them. 9-11 is so important. The history, the, this history we're going to get into here, I hope that you're still listening, is critical to understanding why we're at this, this uh, the cro- it's a crossroads right the, now. The world, the world changed forever on 9-11. Right. And not, not in the, I remember thinking, I was, everyone has their where was I, I remember thinking that nothing would be the same. And I, I don't, I'm not saying I had any insight. I didn't even know about a lot of this stuff back then. I was in college. I was newly wed. I was just trying to get my feet on the ground. But I remember just this, having this distinct impression that nothing would be the same. And what I thought then was that just a couple of months after that, for Christmas of that year, I went to Washington, D.C., where I have family. And there were armed National Guardsmen at the BWI airport in Baltimore, where I flew into. And they were not just armed, but their weapons were at the ready. They had their weapons up as if all of us were a potential threat. And it was frightening. And there were not a few of these. There were many, many people. That was the beginning of what we call now the security state. And at least this phase of the security state. This phase of it, which of course has led to spying and, and listening. But it's set in motion I think events that we are still that are that are still unfolding today. That was the whole premise of why we decided to do this, right? In our very first episode, we talked about all of these things are coordinated mm-hmm. and planned. Right. 9/11 was the cover-up for 
uh, malfeasance that was going on for about 20 years, since uh, essentially since the Iranian Revolution. In 1908, oil was discovered in Iran, and cars weren't a big thing at that point in time, but that changed the history of the world forever. And um, we'll, we'll get into this in just a minute, but 9-11 was essentially an inflection point covering up for the, uh, the malfeasance that was going on in the 80s and the 90s, and now what we're seeing with coronavirus was is a huge cover-up, a huge misdirection for to cover up all of the malfeasance that was going on since 9-11. And we got to recognize that so that we don't get, so that we can at least remain as, as aloof and independent of it as possible, but, but we got to recognize it. So we, we've got to go from the Amalekiah episode and discuss the secret combination episode, because you see the, the government of the Nephites the, the, uh, right after Amalekai gains control of the Lamanite nation, there's a great war. And that's the rest of the book of the Alma is talking about the great war between the Lamanites, which was led by Amalekai and Moroni leading the Nephites to maintain their freedom. And then Amalekai gets killed and he, his brother Amaron is even more evil and he continues the, the fight against the Nephites until they're ultimately destroyed. Well, about... So that goes on for about 10 years, roughly, give or take. And then there's, there's uh, a certain amount of peace in the land. There's a few wars, uh, a few isolated instances, but we get to the Book of Helaman, which is uh, 50, uh, approximately 50 years before Christ. So another, after the end of the wars, another 10 years has, has elapsed. And at that point in time, uh, the son of Moroni, his name's Moroni Ha, finally reestablishes peace between the Lamanites and the Nephites. And this is the beginning of, of Helaman. It's Helaman chapter, uh, actually, it's Helaman chapter one. I believe there's still some conflict. There's but, some interesting things, and, and maybe you're getting, getting to those right, right off the bat in Helaman, that somebody comes along. We're about 10 years after the war. Comes along. His name's Payanki. And he does exactly what Malachi tried to do. He tries to gain power through flattery and to destroy the liberty and to destroy the liberty of the people. But the people catch on to it. He's tried in a court and put to death. Right. This is a son of Pahoran, right? There was a okay, so the during this time, the 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 chief priest is no longer they they the the society becomes more secularized. They no longer elect the chief priest as the chief judge, and a man named Pahoran is running running the country as the chief judge, and he dies, and his sons he's got three sons. He's got three sons, and they begin named. to contend, they begin to contend for who will lead the people, and this Pianchi, Pianchi, he um he's a bad guy, and they. Well, it, it says that there were there there were many sons of Ahoran, but these three were contending for the judgment seat, and they caused three divisions among the people. So the pattern, what I'm getting at here is just the pattern is the same, right? Political campaigns filled with flattery, uh, mm-hmm. lies, deceit, yeah. and anger. They 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 people get angry, and the people who support the different political. Uh, candidates, they get angry at the other people. Where do we see that? <laughs> right. Now, the voice of the people wanted uh, Pahoran's son, Pahoran, to be the next judge. And so they voted him in. But what happened was, instead of a stolen election, you get uh, 
this guy named Kishkuman, who comes out of nowhere and just kills the guy. He kills the chief judge, this brand new chief judge. Well, this is after, so according to the law of the land, right, Pianchi was put to death. Mm -hmm. And the people that, the people that supported him were angry. And so they hired or arranged for Kishkuman to murder his brother who had won the chief judge, who had won the election. So Kishkuman was a hired assassin and a really fast runner. (laughs) <laughs> well, they it says in in chapter one of Helaman, verse eleven, that um, he he was pursued by the servants of Pahoran. This is verse ten of chapter one. But so speedy was the flight of Kishkumen that no man could overtake him, and he went unto those that sent him, and they all entered into a covenant, yea, swearing by their everlasting Maker that they would tell no man that Kishkumen had murdered Ku- Pahoran. Therefore, Kishkumen was not known among the people of Nephi, for he was in disguise at the time he murdered Pahoran. And Kishkumen and his band, who had covenanted with him, did mingle themselves amongst the people in a manner that they could not be found. But as many as were found were condemned unto death. So here we have a conspiracy, right? By definition, we have a conspiracy. A secret conspiracy. And I think it goes on and explains that uh, there, there was another there was another insurgents. Actually, it was a Lamanite uh, guy named Tubaloth who comes and and strikes right at the heart of the the Nephite nation. And so you you get a little bit of a war going on. And um, Moroni, the son tu- of Moroni, has to set things right. Tubaloth was the grandson of Amalickiah. Okay. Says he was the son of Amaron. Is that the same? A- Amaron was uh, Malachi's brother, I think. Okay, so ne- ne- same family. Same family. Yeah, <laughs> it's us- it's always the same family. That's another <laughs> that's another interesting thing. It's the same families that get involved in this stuff. So you're saying that even then that there was elite ruling class families. Exactly. <laughs> On both sides. On both sides. Yeah. On both, and that's usually the way it's been. Anyway, so that this this narrative gets interrupted by the uh, this. Uh, incursion into Nephite territory by Tubaloth. And then you get to chapter two, where it says that Moronihah finally was able to establish peace again in the land. And um, it came to pass that Helaman, who was the son of Helaman, was appointed to fill the judgment seat by the voice of the people. So now you have a man who's back from the, the high priestly class now running the, the nation again. And he is a little bit more savvy than the next guys, because it, by verse three, or he was a little more savvy than the previous guys, the sons of Pahoran, maybe a little more inspired. We don't know. But he says, Kishkumen, who had murdered Pahoran, did lay in wait to destroy Helaman also. But um, there was a servant of Helaman, and Helaman is, they're, they're getting wise to what's going on. And so Helaman has some spies out by night, or a servant out by night, who obtains knowledge of the plans of uh, the band of Kishkumen. And Right here in Helaman chapter two, uh, do, if you want to go through it, go ahead and go through it. I just, you can go read it if you guys want, but uh, it describes well, the, the formation of the, uh, of the band of Gadianton and some of the dynamics of how these people work. Yeah, and I, I don't know if we need to get super into the, into the details of all the things that they do. Um, I think the key points are one we covered was that after Kishkumen committed murder, they entered into a secret covenant. And in this culture, in this time, these oaths and covenants were extremely important. 
these are agreements. We, we have these. We have legal right. agreements. We call them contracts. Have, yeah, but we also have secret contracts or verbal contracts. Right. We have ways of distinguishing who is on your side or not. You have, uh, like, the, the Masons have handshakes and right. stuff like that. There's, there's a lot to be made of this. It explains in verse 4, it says, There was one Gadianton who was exceedingly expert in many words and also in his craft to carry on the secret work of murder and robbery. Therefore, he became the leader of the band of Kishkumen. So he, he knew how to set up the organization. And um, he becomes, it, it, they, they get called the Gadianton robbers because they follow his system. And they, they have signs and tokens that they give to each other so that they could distinguish who's part of the organization. It's, it's amazing to me how many Mormons I talk to who don't want to believe that the gov- that governmental agencies and contractors and high, people in high levels of industry would be involved in secret groups that, that would have secret signs and that they would, they would need the signs so that they could distinguish who had been initiated and at what level and, and what kind of respect or or obedience or allegiance to give to those people because of their ascendancy in the organization. It's right here. It's 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 I mean, if you can think of it in a movie, if you if you can think of a, uh, if you can detail this out enough to make an interesting movie, then it's it's got to be way worse in reality. <laughs> well, not only that, but, but Mormons also know something about keywords and signs and tokens signs and, and, and secret and, ceremonies and, and initiations and and i don't want to make make light of but of, that's the temple that. ceremony but, but the point is that we've talked about inversion it's becoming one of my favorite themes the forces of evil take things that are good and righteous and they invert them and use them to their own purposes 1984 we refer to a lot the opening lines in 1984 are freedom is slavery War is peace. Strength through ignorance. Strength is ignorance, or ignorance is strength. Basically, the, the, the point there is that language and words and principles become inverted. And we, we see that all the time with, just look at Joe Biden's inaugural speech, where loyalty the, to the government, loyalty, loyalty to his government is the hallmark of patriotism and the hallmark of democracy and the hallmark of righteousness. What we have here, it's interesting with Gadianton because he takes control of this band and what does he immediately do? What does he do? He tries to get himself placed in the position of power. He tries to become the chief judge and he promises the people that if they help him, that they will also sit in positions of power and authority. It is the sad truth that all men who gain authority as they suppose will immediately exercise unrighteous dominion. That's not just true in the past. It's not just true in the movies and in the fairy tales and in the myths and legends. It's, it's true now. It's true today. That's why these, this record has all of this. The, 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 I'm sure Mormon could have created a record that was more, uh, that didn't have any of this secular political type stuff into in it. I'm sure there were plenty of religious writings and revelations and things like we get in, say, Second Nephi, which are very doctrinal, or even parts of Alma, which are a very doctrinal, and Mosiah, which talk about the plan of salvation and Adam and Eve and, and repentance and being born again. We could have had more of that, but Mormon takes up a lot of precious metal space 
limited space to include this. Later on, and when we refer to this verse, these verses in the Book of Mormon last week, later on we are told to awake, awaken to the sense of our awful sens- situation so that this secret combination does not get above us. What does that mean to get above us? That doesn't, it is to prevent them from gaining power over us. We failed in that. We failed as a, as a nation, as a, even as a Mormon people, as, as a Mormon people, but also as a, as a nation, as a, as citizens of the United States, as liberty loving people, we have so far failed. And I would include also, uh, the people of the world, the people of, of the world who have failed in this, especially those who have the means and the knowledge to overcome it. I would, I would count the United States, Europe, parts of South America. There's some, some places in the world that they don't have the means. Mm-hmm. They've been controlled and oppressed for so long that the people are broken. We are in the process of being broken. Right. Well, and Mormons especially, we ha- we much has been given here, and we have completely missed the boat relative to understanding secret combinations. I mean, the the mental gymnastics, the mental contortions that I've heard people go to when I've talked about this with them, or when they when they try to discuss it in in gospel doctrine class or whatever, are are astounding. The, if we just read the record at the end of Helaman chapter two. Mormon says this, he says, more will be spoken of Gadianton hereafter. And thus ended the 40 and second year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. This is only 40 years after they they had their experiment. Remember, America was roughly free up until uh, the Civil War, which was 80 years later, uh, you know, before the before the real hammer came down on the United States. But uh, and we still had the whole frontier that we could we could expand into. Well, anyway, 40 years after the reign of the judges, 20 years in, it's a Malachi. 20 years later, you get this Gadianton who tries to kill uh, Kishkumen, tries to kill Helaman. Helaman and his his people realize that they're that they're afoot, that they're that they're working in their society. And so they try to ferret them out. And it says that they uh, they fled into the wilderness by a secret way. Right. Which is which is interesting because a lot of people then who study this, they think, oh, they were external to the people, which, which is silly because in the very next chapter, in Helaman chapter uh, 3, in verse 23, which I already read to you today, it says that they tried to destroy, that there, that there was peace in the land except for the secret combinations, that had become established in the more settled parts of the land. But wait a minute, just, just barely in chapter 2, it said they fled, right? No, they, they were secret. <laughs> they were, the, 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 the fleeing occurred because of the certain people had been found out and they needed to leave the, the territory, but they continued their signs, their tokens, their, their secret agreements, their contractual relationships, their covenants. They, they continued those in secret in the more settled parts of the land, which would be the cities, which would be like uh, New York, uh, L.A., Washington, D.C., you know, the Eastern Seaboard, uh, Denver, Salt Lake, Portland. And we're talking about the city areas, which are the more settled parts of the land. That's where they, that's where they take control. And um, he says at the end of chapter 2, we're going to talk about Gadiant and more hereafter. And uh, in the end of this book, meaning the end of the 
entire record, you'll see that Gadianton did prove the overflow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. I don't mean the end of the book of Helaman. I mean the end of the book of Nephi, from which I have taken this entire account that I'm writing. So really what he means is the book of Mormon. It gets called the book of Mormon right. because well, he compiles it. The 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 record ends, the, 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 the spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, it ends with the literal destruction of everybody. Everybody, yeah. And it starts... But it's not... It's not just once, it's twice. Right. They, they, get, they get destroyed before the coming of the Lord and after the coming of the and Lord. You, you might, I, there, there's a lot more to it, but you might, if you were going to point to one single event, you would go to the Kishkumen's murder and the subsequent secret covenants that set them on the path to destruction. And the whole book of Ether is about a whole different civilization that was there prior, and they get destroyed by secret combinations. <laughs> it's like so what's the theme what's the theme of the what's book what's the common theme <laughs> secret combinations lead to the destruction of mighty civilizations the fall right. empires fall due with em secret combinations topple empires they topple they topple seemingly uh stable countries that have long standing governments because of corruption within and secret works men men working in darkness murdering in darkness stealing in darkness gaining power in darkness et tu brutus <laughs> yeah there you go caesar even so uh so there we go we've we've covered the we've covered kind of the origin of the secret combinations and how they get established in the land. And I think now would be a good time to switch into this discussion of Dylan Reed and co. And I will right. try to briefly summarize. <laughs> and we know how brief Jordan is when he's brief. Yeah. But the point is here, we're transitioning to talking about our day, the secret combinations that are happening right in front of our faces in our days. Let's keep in mind that the Gadiantons were well known. The people knew that this thing existed. They knew that these people existed. They knew that these combinations and these murders were happening. What the Gadiantons were able to do was to take, they were able to take control of the mechanisms that would have punished them. They were able to take control of the law enforcement and the judges and so they were able to carry out their works of murder and robbery and plunder and deceit without fear of being held accountable. They were able to do these things and act with impunity. And the people were basically powerless because... But see, they, they had taken hold in the settled parts of the land. It, right. the, the record repeatedly tells us that the, the more sophisticated elements of society had joined with... The secret combination. What you're saying is so important. How do those people maintain their power and their wealth and their influence and their ability to act without uh, any recourse? Any you consequences. Know, with, with any consequences. They, they have to have support in the, in the governmental structure. And so what you're saying is, is ultra critical. Today we call it the, uh, the circuit uh, courts. The all the courts that didn't want to hear any of the election fraud. Or not just election fraud, but but when's the last time when's the last time somebody some some crook on Wall Street or a, a corrupt crooked politician 
was severely punished. There's a few once in a while they'll, they'll make an example of, like Bernie Madoff comes to mind. Rod, That's, Rod Blagovich, what's his name? Yeah, these guys are like, they're like one, one of, of hundreds or thousands of people that could be prosecuted right. for breaking the law. And KSL wants to report on Amber Alerts where women are taking their own children and running because the state has decided they're unfit to take their to take care of their kids. Right. I mean, that's the type of crime that we see. Or the FBI is currently has has arrested a guy who in 2016 posted a meme Oh yeah, a, a literal <laughs> meme jokingly telling people to vote by text. And they're investigating him. They're also, you know, in the in the internet, there are also people who on the flip side were saying the same thing, trying to trick Trump supporters or Trump voters into doing the same thing. I don't think those people are being prosecuted or investigated. The point here is that the the mechanisms that the regular people like me and Jordan and you and everyone else that you know, the regular people, the supposedly the 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 people that the government works for, the mechanisms that we have for holding our political and uh, elected leaders, appointed leaders, corporate leaders, all of these people who who are involved in these secret combinations to get power and gain, the mechanisms to hold them accountable are also captured, which leaves us powerless and voiceless. And what happens then? What happens when you go beyond politics? War. Violence. <laughs> Violence. War. Riots. And so... No wonder we have a lot of people who are frustrated and upset. Right. Right. We're, we are, we're, uh, we're 10 feet off the cliff. Imagine Wile E. Coyote in the Roadrunner episodes. <laughs> we are Wile E. Coyote as a society. We are 10 feet off the cliff, and we're holding up a sign that says, oops. oops. <laughs> and we are uh, 100 feet from the bottom with a lot of screaming left to go. That's well, where and, we're and at. And the roadrunner is on the edge of the cliff laughing at us. Yeah. So so we got to start, we, we, we got to talk about Dylan Reed and Co. And I'm not going, I'm going to try to be brief. I realize that's not in my nature. Uh, those of you that know me that are listening are laughing right now. I get it. I do have to give you the from the beginning of time explanation. It's important. I'm going to once again repeat myself and say, DylanReedandCo.com, what Catherine Austin Fitz has written is one of the most important uh pieces of primary source witness commentary on recent American history that there is, period, end of story. Like well, if, if I'm trying to explain the last 40 years to anybody, you've got to talk about Dylan Reed and co. And nobody knows about this. We'll link to the website. And I think it's important. A lot of this is going to be actually be new to me uh, today. But keep in mind when you go to that website, when you listen to this, Keep in mind the recent events on Wall Street with uh, GameStop and Robin Hood and Citadel and the government and these big players. Um, right. Because we're seeing these sort of things. We're seeing the combination play out right in front of our face. And what can we do about right. it? Right. We are, we are, when I say we're Wile E. Coyote and we are off the edge of the cliff, I am serious. Okay. This is, there is nothing we can do except uh, repent and try and get right with God and survive. We're not going to fix this system. And we've talked about that. We talked in our very first episode about the history of the central banking establishment. But the point is 
that secret combinations have set up a system of power and gain that they control and manipulate. And the reason that it destroys an entire society is because those systems eat themselves from within. The, the, the pie is never big enough for all of these people who uh, participate in the secret combination to be adequately gratified, to be sufficiently satiated. They, they, there is never enough greed or there's never enough wealth and control to satisfy all the people that have to be brought in to the system. And so therefore the system collapses upon itself. So this doesn't just start with uh, Catherine Austin Fitz's story, but she does such a good job putting, connecting so many dots that I, I've got to point it out and say it's one of the most important works of, uh, by anybody relative to recent American history. And as, and as you remember, I pointed out uh, in a past episode that I think that conspiracy theory is essentially the unifying theory or the the theory of everything you know relative to history it's the thing that explains everything that happens and makes sense of history so uh fitz catherine austin fitz was uh, an investment banker at dylan reed and co in the 80s she was there for like uh, 10 or 15 years and she ended up as Undersecretary of Housing and Urban Development in the at the end of the Bush administration, the first Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush. So, so from 1990 to 1992, I think, or 90, right at the end of 91, 92, she became uh, involved in the administration. And then she started a company called Hamilton Securities, which was an investment banking outfit that, that partnered with HUD to bring transparency to where the money was flowing so that the government could m do better on its real estate transactions. Because what HUD does is it finances um, through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they finance low-income people or, or people who are just getting started to, so that they can get homes. And when those are defaulted, then those homes need to be sold. Those those mortgages need to be taken care of. And the government was losing massive amounts of money. And that so could she, never backfire, though, could it? Yeah. <laughs> lending lending to people who didn't have the money to... Right. Well, the, the, the thing was that what, what, what she found out was happening, and this is obvious, is that insiders were getting all those mortgages for pennies on the dollar rather than selling them. She, the, the first thing they did is they started making sure that the bidding process was available to everybody so that everybody could buy these these mortgage securities or these these mortgages or these homes and they pissed off the Harvard and uh, the Harvard investment endowment because they were insiders that were getting all the freebies and now they were having to pay market rates it's it's just it's it's incredibly alarming it's in your face how brazen these people are and uh, so anyway she starts out as an investment banker back in the in the late 80s uh, ends up in government and she's she's a she's essentially an ethical moral person and so she won't engage in the the graft the um uh, illegal you know pseudo legal type of deals that are going on and she's she's working to try and make the uh, housing and urban development a better and more efficient place right she she set out to try and it's mr smith goes to washington she's trying to help be a uh, a positive f I'm uh, looking at 
um, the the website she has kind of an introductory post called why I wrote the story and the the second paragraph is uh, a short little paragraph but I'm just going to interject with it because it kind of kind of go ahead uh, talks about it kind of gives a little just a quick concise background of who she is and what where mm-hmm. her mind is at and she says surviving and thriving as a free people depends on creating and transacting with currencies and investments other than those printed and manipulated by Wall Street and Washington to the eventual end of our rights and assets. This was several years ago. This is written in about this. 2005, I think, 2006. So you think about what's transpired since 2005 with the housing crisis, oh, yeah. which I'm sure she was right in the middle of watching that. Yeah. And if you're, you want a deep dive on that, read the big short, watch the movie. Um, but then just more recently, the eventual end of our rights and assets being being and, and who's ending those rights and assets, it's Wall Street and Washington combining and conspiring conspiring to do this. Not just the recent like this last week events, but since nine eleven, there's been a whole bunch yeah. of this. Anyway, continue on. So the Jordan. point is the point is Catherine Austin Fitz has the wherewithal to understand this. Not only does she, is she a big picture thinker and was able to pull all the pieces together and see how they interacted, she literally came from this pedigree. She worked as a woman in an investment banking office at a very difficult time for a woman to be breaking into things in the late 80s. She worked in government at uh, just below the cabinet level position of... of uh, she, in, she reports to the Secretary of Housing. To put it in some perspective, the, the 80s Wall Street scene empowered and gave rise to people like Jeffrey Epstein. That was his background. Yeah. And he rose to power or rose to prominence in the 80s on this, you know, uh, cutthroat, in this cutthroat environment. Mm-hmm. So, so she has the pedigree. She has the education. She has the wherewithal to have had all of these interactions, to know the people intimately, to, to make sense of the situation, and to even have started a company that was a government contractor making uh, millions of dollars every year advising the Department of Housing and Urban Development to improve their operations so that they could eliminate government waste and avoid having to have people pay um, as much tax, right, to, to, to improve government. And that was her mistake. She wasn't greasing the right wheels or, or uh, lining the right people's pockets and therefore became a target of the establishment. She came under attack by... Uh, the lower judges were Roth. <laughs> right. There was, uh, you got to read the, read the whole thing. I'm going to try not to give too many details, but she was, there was a lawsuit against her. It was a Ketom lawsuit, which means s- somebody in secret filed a lawsuit. And those are only supposed to remain secret for about 60 days because you're supposed to know who your accuser is. Her Ketom lawsuit was secret for five years, and she names names. She tells you where all the bodies are buried. She came under fire from, from the government and from some of these special interests. I think there were 18 different lawsuits that they put her company out of business and destroyed her, took, took as much of her wealth as possible, and they attempted to try to put her in prison. And that, that's interesting because... Her saga relates to the private for-profit prison system business that was going on in Wall Street at the time. And she 
she didn't realize what was going on until after the fact when she starts to put all the pieces together. And so then she comes back and writes this expose to try and show you what has happened. Well, Dylan Reed is a company, an investment bank, that was really prominent in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They, their directors would be, uh, the revolving door in, in Washington would, would make their uh, directors pre- uh, secretaries of the Treasury or secretaries of war. Uh, on multiple occasions, not just one or two occasions. Dylan Reed was highly linked in. They had ties to the, the, their, their founders have ties to the Bush family. These guys are massive players in Washington. And now remember, Secretary of War is today known as Secretary of Defense. <laughs> After World War, War II, we were a little bit more forthright about what we were doing. And then we had to bastardize the language and we call it secretary of defense today. But the, these people are totally linked in and she was intimately related with and worked with for many years, these same people in various capacities. And they tried to put her in jail for, for trying to shed light on the situation. Well, this all starts, the, the story kind of starts with this discovery of oil in Iran and the Iran Contra affair. I'm, you read her stuff, you'll see her perspective. I'm f- trying to fill in some of the gaps. In 1908, oil was discovered in Iran, and the British Petroleum Company got involved there. During World War II, the Germans took over, and after World War II, when Iran was liberated, they had their brief moment of democracy where the Shah had allowed a, a representative parliament, and a guy named Mosaddegh uh, kicked the British out. Now, why would you kick the British out and nationalize your oil industry? Aren't, aren't you supposed to allow the free market? Well, when foreign interests come in and manipulate your government, that's when you might want to nationalize the industry <laughs> and take it, take it away from these foreign interests because it happens to be your country and, and your land and stuff. And so, the, so prior to World War II, the Iranians, you know, hadn't understood what kind of a natural resource they had in their oil. And it became clear because, you know, Germany and, and the mechanized warfare and, and, you know, transportation, et cetera, by, by the end of World War II, it was pretty obvious. So they had clear, compelling reasons to want to nationalize or to bring out from under the grasp of foreign corporations their own natural resources, right? Well, this is when the CIA gets involved. The newly formed CIA through uh, Operation Ajax, it's, it's all declassified. They deposed Mokizedek, Mokizedek, Mosedek. <laughs> the names get difficult sometimes. They depose Mosedek and uh, cement the Shah as their puppet dictator up until the Iranian Revolution in uh, the late 70s during the Carter administration when the Khomeini's took over and made it an Islamic Republic. So they, uh, the Shah tried again to nationalize the oil company. And so they destabilized foreign, uh, our country destabilized their country. Why again, it's over oil. And I used to hate it when people would, uh, say that America was mucking up the rest of the world for oil but it's true <laughs> for natural resources. You, you know, when you, you got to call a spade a spade here. 
we were meddling in their affairs. And so there's this uh, ultra-radical Islamic um, religious government that takes over in the Khomeini's, and they depose the Shah in the late in the late 80s. Well, because of that, because they no longer were following our protocols, the Americans and the Western powers impose what we call sanctions or arms embargoes. We don't want to give people that don't do what we say any chance to defend themselves. So this this has been the crux of a lot of what's going on in the Middle East and the fight with Russia and all the stuff that's been going on since the the Cold War in the 80s. It has to do with arms embargoes and w- if satellite states and will you do what we say? Will you allow our interests, our our uh, our Wall Street people to come in and exploit your natural resources? That's that's what's been going on. And so you get to the to the point in the late in the early 80s where we have the Reagan administration and the Iran-Contra affair. Now, even adults that I, I'm an adult, okay, I, even people who are older than me, the generation older than me, the baby boomers, they don't seem to have an appreciation for how significant the Iran-Contra affair was. Well, I think it became, even then, it became a, a political issue and a Republican versus Democrat thing where, the Democrats were just on a witch hunt to make this military, decorated military uh, guy, Oliver North, look bad, and mm-hmm. Reagan look bad. So here, here's the what Wikipedia says about it. it says, uh, the Iran-Contra affair was a political scandal in the United States that occurred during the second term of the Reagan administration. Senior administration officials secretly facilitated the sale of arms to the Khomeini government, of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which was the subject of an arms embargo. The administration had hoped to use the proceeds of the arms sale to fund the Contras in Nicaragua under the Borland appointment. Further funding the co- of the Contras by the government had been prohibited by the Congress. It's so, a, and, and it's worth noting that the Contras were basically a, uh, a right-wing militia group that were fighting against supposedly fighting against cartels and or communism and communism but uh, what they were fighting against was the democracy yeah they didn't want the the democracy to what it was (laughs) is they were funding they were funding a a civil war in nicaragua right right so what's what's silly here is it's like well we had an arms embargo with iran so we secretly sold them arms so that we could finance the Contras in their civil war. Well, why didn't we just give the arms to the Contras? The problem is the right people aren't being enriched, and there's far more to the story when you start to peel back mm-hmm. the layers of the onion here. Well, anyway, the another way they began in the 80s to finance the Contras was by selling drugs in America. Okay, so they would sell the drugs in the United States and they would take the money to finance all these black budget things that, drugs, the, that the CIA was drugs involved Drugs that in. the Contras in, in Nicaragua helped them secure. They would, they, would, they would take those Contras and they would drop them into Colombia somewhere and they would murder a bunch of people, invade a, a, a drug operation in, in the name of a bust, Right. Take the take the drugs, sell it in America, and sell them in America <laughs> through oftentimes through the cartels. They were always they would cover themselves through right. the cartels. It was an open secret among the Colombian and the Mexican cartels that that 
20% of this stuff we move is going to get seized. I'm air quoting seized by the American, by the Americans. And for, that, for propaganda and purposes. Then the, and then that they would sell it to, and, and they would destroy the inner cities of America, particularly the black people in America, uh, right. and get them all addicted to cocaine. And make a heck of a lot of money, and use that money destabilizing regimes wherever they needed to. Meanwhile, I'm in elementary school at this time, and junior la, high la, being, la, la, la. being told... Being being taught every Tuesday afternoon the Dare program, right? <laughs> the you know Dare to say no to drugs, right. which of course saying no to drugs is a good idea, but the idea is that the propaganda machine and the war on drugs was being waged even in elementary schools. Remember, the bankers figured out you fund both sides of the conflict. Exactly, and a lot of people were getting super rich off of the sale of cocaine in the United States. Right. The same people who were supposedly fighting this war on drugs. Right. So the issue has to do with money laundering at this point, because there's all this black money out there that needs to get made righteous. It needs to be made good for the system because there are state apparatuses out there that are engaging in uh, oversight. You know, they, they, they can't, uh, only certain people are allowed to break the law in this ways through these, through these money, in these ways, through these money laundering operations. And so they have to repatriate or, or launder the money to get it to the right people so that they can be enriched by it. If you're interested in some fun pop culture on on this and you want to learn some Spanish swear words, look up the TV series Narcos and, and watch that. It's okay. really well done and kind of goes through the, the rise and fall of the Colombian and the Mexican cartels. But Well, anyway... Catherine Austin Fitz, in the first few chapters, she sets the stage. She explains who Dylan Reed is, who her direct, the directors of her investment bank are, what companies they're involved with, and how, how they operate, and how, how stock profits are generated, and how companies go public. And then she explains who RJR Nabisco is, and how RJR, uh, the Reynolds company, w- was a massive tobacco um, corporation and then they bought Nabisco so they could have other stuff but they they were integrally involved in the laundering of billions of dollars perhaps a trillion dollars every year through the sale of cigarettes where where a lot of the drug traffickers you know the drugs are not legit but cigarettes are so they would buy with with uh, dirty money cigarettes from RGR Nabisco to launder their drug money so you're saying that when I buy Triscuits I'm actually helping supporting the, drug the trade? enemy yeah oh yeah Every that's the thing. We're so steeped in this. You go to the supermarket, you buy any <laughs> you can't get away from it. She says, she points this out and it's worth just reading. She says she says we are so financially entangled in the federal government and large corporations and banks that we cannot see our complicity in everything we say we abhor. Our social networks are so interwoven with the institutional leadership Government officials, bankers, lawyers, professors, foundation heads, corporate executives, investors, fellow alumni, that we dare not hold our own families, friends, colleagues, and neighbors accountable for the very real financial and operational complicity. While we hate the system, we keep honoring and supporting the people and institutions that are implementing the system when we interact and transact with them in our day-to-day lives. Enjoying the financial benefits and other perks that come from that intimate support ensures our continued complicity and contribution to fueling that which we say we hate. 
uh, the more settled parts of the land. Those are damning words. Yeah, is that at the start? Was that in the first part? Listen to this yeah. from the end. Towards the end, she says this. The power of the killing machine rests in part in the broad-based popular support it receives through the investment system and the financial markets. How are we to plead ignorance if the profits and growth in our 401k plans and investment portfolios have been enriched from prison stocks and from the securities of the banks, home builders, property managers, mortgage bankers, and other groups who manage this process of ethnic and economic cleansing and the gentrification that made it possible. What can our socially responsible investment managers say when they invest in the stocks of banks like Citibank and J.P. Morgan Chase and government contractors like IBM and AT&T who are running critical parts of government as these manipulations occur? including the disappearance of $4 trillion from government bank accounts. This was before 9-11. Okay. Literally before, on right September before. 10th. Yeah, they, they finally admitted the day before. that, that it was uh, Donald Rumsfeld famously admitted there were $2 trillion gone from the Pentagon. It's $4 trillion. Some of it came from HUD. Most of it came from the Department of Defense. Uh, from government bank accounts and the manipulation of the gold markets and inventory in a silent financial coup d'etat. What can all those who benefited financially in the stock market or from cheap mortgage and consumer loans or reduced ATM and checking fees say? We disassociate the source of our financial benefits from what we saw happening in the around us that we knew was wrong. She just cuts right to the heart of the matter and she will tell you where the bodies are buried and she will tell you what happened. The point is to, to just concisely tie these two ends of the story together, the front and the back. She explains where she comes from. She explains how she sh tried to shed light on the subject and became a target of, of uh, investigation by the government. She recommends watching the movie Enemy of the State with Will Smith, where they just destroy his life because he happens to have a piece of information they don't want him to have. Really a good movie. I like it. G Will Smith, Gene Hackman. Everybody should watch Enemy of the State. Anyway... She, she was the subject of massive government harassment and surveillance. She won. She beat them in court, okay? So as discredited as she may be, she's clean. She's a perfect whistleblower. People just don't like what she has to say. When Jordan says discredited, what he means is that the establishment has decided she's wrong. It's not that they're actual discrediting, that what she was proven to be false or wrong. So when we talk about like Judy Mikovits yeah. or Plandemic, yeah, or uh, some of the others that we've seen more recently, or even the the uh, um, the election fraud, where they say it's discredited, discredited. it that's it, it's not. It's just right. it hasn't been proven. It in, hasn't been proven false. Right in conspiracy research circles, people will say that a theory is not a good theory until it has been officially denied. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, so that's what we're dealing with here. Anyway, to, so to, to make the long story short here, she explains how Dylan Reed and company was, in, was involved in, and other Wall Street banks were involved in supporting the likes of RJR Nabisco, who was laundering between 500, and a trillion, 500 billion and a trillion dollars of this black narco money every year. And she explains who it was enriching and how they, how they uh, decided to get involved in privatizing the prison industries in America, simultaneously changing the laws so that there was mandatory sentencing, which means that, you know, these second and third time offenders, or I think it's three strikes and you're out, would have to, like marijuana users, would have to go spend time in a federal penitentiary because it 
supported the bottom line of these companies that had that had built the prison industries and so it's the the security state it, she explains what how and where and who it is enriching and how they're playing both sides of it so that they can fill the beds in these prisons these for-profit prisons which then um which then uh, enriches the bottom line of these conspirators, these Gadiantins. She's, she's got this funny revelation in one of her chapters where she says, at one point, when I finally figured this out, I, I called up my attorney and asked, if I had gone to jail, one of these attorneys, one of the myriad of attorneys that she dealt with, she says, if I had gone to jail, where would I have gone to jail? And it would have been in, he says, it would have been in this jail. And she says, and that was run by Cornell Corrections, which was uh, IPO'd by Dylan Reed and Co. So my people were going to put me in one of the prisons. I would have made them $24,000 in stock profits for the first year. She's like, literally. Well, this, this isn't unique to, to prisons. Prisons in this case have been made into a product, right? And, this is what we we've been witnessing the last year in in blatant uh, obviousness with certain drugs like rem remdesivir right and mm -hmm. the vaccine of course but but we've seen this for a long time where the same people will manufacture the ammunition and manufacture the war now we're back to sherlock holmes the second one right and they <laughs> and they manufacture the war this is what amalekiah was doing he was manufacturing a war that would help put him into power and to consolidate his power right, right. you make a super good point because Catherine austin fitz her expose goes up through the, the 80s and 90s she explains how they were profiting off of the the money from the selling of drugs and the selling of arms and the, the the government contractors and all the all the people in Wall Street were building up companies that that had government contracts to combat the war on drugs and to well, they, they create a crisis and then they, the, they create all these apparatuses that to, receive the money to and control. fight to fight a war you need an an enemy in the case of the war on drugs you need a supply of drugs and people who will use them because mm -hmm. then you have some justification there was not a need for a war on drugs in the 1950s because there was not widespread drug use. Well, right, and anything that the United States, ever since World War II, anything the U.S. declares war on is a total loss. I mean, well, the, the war on drugs is, is never meant to end. The war on terror means you need terrorists. Right. The war on poverty means you need poor people. Right, and that's why, yeah, but let's, get, let's look at what they did. They turned it into a massive pump and dump scheme. So they, they pump up the prison system and then they sell all of that off. Now other people invest in that system, which is now a, sort of a cancerous remnant of their activities. And it's all related to Iran-Contra, and, the, and the, this is where Gary Webb and the Dark Alliance comes in. He's the guy that shot himself twice in the head. Um, he discovered that the CIA was complicit in selling drugs in, in, in California, and made a, they made a big deal about it. A lot of people, due to Gary Webb's work, were enraged in the inner cities, and uh, the, CIA, the director of the CIA even had to come out and... Uh, kind of calm everybody down there was a there was a, a two two-pronged report that was put out in the congressional record and so she she goes through all this history i'm not just blowing smoke here she gives all the details and she ties all these pieces together right up until 9 11 she doesn't get into anything after 9 11 because there was a massive pump and dump it created four trillion dollars of unaccounted for money in the federal government 
and that's not including all the black the black stuff going on, all the laundering that's going on. It, it created several industries where people who owned the stocks and who IPO'd the stocks. So that's what an investment banker will do. It'll take a company public and uh, allow them to uh, get even more leverage and more more ability to operate by by selling equity into the market, right? So, so that all that all is going on before nine eleven, and it's all related to this this playing both sides that this these these Gadiantons, this secret combination, is involved in, and she lays it bare. It is really, really, really important. If you if you're listening to this and you don't come away with the fact that I want you to read Dylan Reed and Co. dot com, <laughs> you have missed missed the boat here. Everybody needs to read this. The point is they pumped it up. And then because it's starting to become more clear, they need a new crisis. And that crisis now is no longer the war on drugs. It's the war on terrorism. Now, we still get some interesting... The, the war on drugs continues, but, but you have to admit that from 2001 to last year, the main story has been terrorism. And it wasn't until 2009, 10, 11, after the housing crisis, that we started to see Hollywood and people start to shed more mainstream light on the fact that what we're really doing in Afghanistan was protecting the poppy fields. And so you get, you start to get some, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of natural resources in Afghanistan that they want to exploit. When you've had this kind of ground up populist movement for the legalization of drugs, which could potentially hurt the war on drugs well, it's Money. because it's run its course. These people, right. they, they know that they can't get away with this forever, so they, they have to pump so, and man, then dump. Right, right. And so you, you have yet the war on terror, which, which massively, first of all, we forgot about the $4 trillion that were lost. And then you get Halliburton with their no-bid contract. And then they, they're, it, 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 it's such a money-making uh, wonderland that they literally were buying uh, equipment and using it out, not not maintaining it, and then burning it. They, those, if you look up the Halliburton burn pits, hopefully you'll be able to find some material on that on on the web. But literally, they would buy a Mercedes Benz uh, diesel truck and never change the oil in it. And then when they'd driven it fifty thousand miles, or twenty thousand miles, or whatever it takes to burn up the engine, they'd just drive it into a pit and burn it because they had a no bid cost plus contract where they. There was no accountability, so they just made ten percent on any money that ran through Halliburton for those purposes. So Halliburton, Halliburton, Halliburton. I know there's a lot of conservatives out there that oh Halliburton, we have we have to have somebody willing to prosecute this war. Well, why are we prosecuting the war in the first place? It was based on a false flag, false premise attack where we had to go get the terrorists or any nation that well, harbored them. And you bring up a good point because the Halliburton controversy when it was talked about was was framed in right versus left and that pits us against one another just like the sons of <clears throat> the sons of Pahoran ran their political campaigns and their supporters were wroth with one another and they create this conflict we, it's a perfect feeding ground for the secret combination to, they want to keep us divided look at the, the covid response has become a political thing yeah and, let, and remember, the war on terror was losing steam. The idea we were becoming war weary. So now, what are we at war with? Coronavirus. Coronavirus is clearly political. And yeah, know, we could argue that it's a thing, and a few people have died, but it's. But they know that the, that's going to run response, out of steam, right? And sooner than later. So who's who's the next enemy? 
the next enemy is now we've got the the pharmaceutical complex to add the pharmaceutical media complex to add to our list of co-conspiracies not that they weren't already there but sure. previously we had more of the military industrial anti-terrorist complex and in every case massive industries are developed i mean look at all the equipment that is sold for airport security or uh, right. stadium security or whatever all of it well, look, is it coming just, from insiders just look at the testing the coronavirus testing business is multi-billion dollar business these states all 50 states and and of course people all over the world are purchasing an, an enormous number of these tests the state of utah alone has administered over three million tests there are only three million people in the state of utah so they have admitted and uh, many people to, are getting tested many times well according to their numbers there have been more than two million individuals tested so a full third of these tests are repeat tests they're they're testing kids over and over again they're testing hospital workers they're yeah, testing sports politicians, players, politicians reporters teachers, you know one yeah. one reporter talked about how many times he's been tested just so he can go to these stupid press conferences but the point is somebody on the other side of these tests is makes money making a ton of money and they're not just making the cost of the test when you own a public company in america you essentially own a small printing press because when you inflate the price of that stock and when you issue stock into the market then insiders can sell their stock at those inflated rates and what do they do with that money? I assume they're all pumping right now and dumping so that they can put their money into tangibles. That's what I think is happening. But that's just me. I think there's going to be a massive crash here, a deflationary type of a crash where everybody realize if it's, realizes that if it's not tangible, if it's not physical, that it didn't matter. Because right now there's a lot of ones and zeros floating around in people's banks, bank accounts. I mean bits, not there's a lot of numbers, you know. There's a, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nines floating around too. But right, there's but a lot of digital. We're talking about digital digital di money, like, which isn't money. At I kind of like the idea of cryptocurrency, but I have a hard time with it. Knowing, well, knowing, expecting that this that this society, which is on the knife's edge, is going to dramatically well, correct. And that's a good way to sort of seg segue or shift into what we witnessed all. Last, Last week, week, right in front of our face, Wall Street and Washington basically said, yeah, we rigged the market. Screw you. We're what not going to let do? you. We're what not going to let you trade it? these stocks. Yeah, we know you guys want to trade these stocks, but you can't. And I think we're going to learn. I hope we learn. For the uninformed, you've got to give a okay. little bit of history well, of what happened last week. Last week was the culmination of something that has sort of been happening slowly behind the scenes. And right at the center of it is an aging brick-and-mortar retail store that you've probably seen at a strip mall near you or used to see at a strip mall near you called GameStop. GameStop sells video games. And back in the old days, if you wanted a video game, you would go to a store like GameStop or Target or Walmart and you would buy a box. And inside the box was a CD or a <laughs> DVD. And on that disc was the game. Yeah. And you would install it just like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and, you know, DVD stores that have kind of gone the wayside. And now that we have uh, high bandwidth, uh, what, what do we call it? Uh, 
High speed. High speed bandwidth, yeah. Yeah, so now if you want a video game or a movie or anything, you, you can have it instantly uh, delivered right to you. Even 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 some of the video games nowadays are are 100 or more gigabytes. They're enormous. High speed can, broadband. Broadband you, was yeah. the word I was looking for. And these enormous 100 gigabyte games, which, which again, in the old days, 100 gigabytes would have been... Dozens been of CDs. A bunch of DVDs or CDs. Yeah. CDs. I remember a, a game... Uh, I, a game that I bought in 2004 came on uh, eight discs, eight CDs. You know, it, it would install and it would say, please insert disc too. And mm-hmm. Anyway, now you can you can download these enormous games in a, in a matter of minutes. Anyway, GameStock over the years has had to pivot. They also have done trade-ins. You could bring in a used game and get some store credit mm-hmm. for it. And their, their primary business model is obsolete. And, they, and they've struggled. And they've pivoted to sell, you know, pop culture things like uh, T-shirts and and toys and stuff. But but overall, just like a lot of brick and mortar retail, they've suffered in the internet age. And and we could talk about the pros and cons of that. But anyway, and my understanding of this is still evolving because I think more facts are going to come out and more interesting things. And I hope someday we have a, a Michael Lewis book like The Big Short about. The Wall Street bets versus uh, Wall Street and GameStop. But the short version is, and we'll link to some explanations on this. There's been some good sort of uh, layman's explanations. And I'm sort of, when it comes to stock market, I'm kind of, I know just enough to lose a lot of money. (laughs) So I have to be careful because I do like to actively trade. Well, anyway, the idea is that because the company appears to be headed down, and it's a publicly traded company, hedge funds. These hedge funds are generally wealthy, wealthy people who have some... They're big companies. They're big companies. Some, some hotshot manager is making a heck of a lot of return for their money. And they will... These guys will control billions uh, of dollars sometimes. And, yeah. and what they did is is one particular hedge fund made a giant bet against GameStop. They, they, they were shorted, shorting the stock. They, they shorted were, the stock. They were expecting that the stock would, in the future decrease in price and when you short a stock you you initiate a series of contracts that allow you to make money if the stock falls well what it turns out is i heard that these companies had shorted over 140 percent of the total market cap of gamestop so meaning they they were selling they were short selling shares that didn't even exist right and and shorting a stock what you're doing is essentially borrowing that stock for example, if if and, and a lot of times you're buy, you you might be borrowing it from your broker, like a Charles Schwab is a broker, or you're borrowing it from somebody who owns it, who then uh, makes those stocks available for short or to borrow. So what you essentially do is, if you short a stock, what you're doing is you you're borrowing it. Let's say the stock price is ten dollars, so you borrow it, and immediately buy it at $10, then you have, what you have is a contract to then give this, return the stock to the person who owns it. What you hope is that the price goes down. So if the price goes down to $7 and then you return the stock at that point, first you would return it for $7, meaning you keep that $3. So you make a profit. Anyway, these guys made massive, massive bets against GameStop. 
and some people at uh, uh, an internet forum on Reddit called Wall Street Bets, which I've I've followed before all of this a little bit, and these guys, they're right to call it Wall Street Bets because they make crazy, financially risky decisions. Risky decisions, and my my guess is that there's probably some normal people who get caught up into it, but I think my theory is that. A lot of these guys have some play money. They have money that they don't care if they lose, and so they can make these crazy bets, and then then they can talk about it. it it's sort of like I, I picture sort of like the people in I don't know, like like um, what what's the movie I'm thinking of? Uh, just some like just the like rich playboy types. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'm st- maybe I'm stereotyping because it's clear that a lot of these guys understand the nuances and the details of the of the financial system and know how to play it right. They're not just your normal guy like me who thinks, well, I should I'll buy some I'll buy some stock in Apple because that's a good fundamental company with a good product and they're going <laughs> to grow. And no, these guys can these guys. So what they saw they saw this weakness. They saw that the stock was 140 percent short, which means that. What happens when everybody at once returns those stocks is the stock price is going to go up because it's being bought. When you return a short stock, it's you're buying it again at a lower price than you borrowed it, if that makes sense. So you have what's called a short squeeze. So in the midst of that collapse, the stock price going down, 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 you're going to see the short squeeze, which is when the price goes up, 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 up. Well, what these Wall Street bets guys did on from Reddit is they all got together and said, look at this stock. It's heavily shorted. Let's all buy it. And so they all started buying and when it. you buy it, what happens is people, the ne- once the stock gar- starts getting purchased, the next marginal sale has to happen at a higher price because people say, oh, there's activity here. I want more money than the last than the last sale. Right. And that drives the price so up. The, so, the, so they started buying... Wall Street, or they they started buying GameStop a, a long time ago, a few months ago, at prices like $4 and $8 and $15 per share. Mm-hmm. And it went over $500 a share uh, last week, by that, the way. And then it caught on and avalanched, and the price skyrocketed. I've never seen stock move that much that fast in both directions over the last few days. But what happened was as that stock price rose, this hedge fund was on the hook. Because remember, they bet against it at like $3 or $5 or $14. So basically what they were betting is that the company would go insolvent and then that they would would make maximum profit on their short. The problem and the risk with a short is your gains are limited. Your gains can only go to zero. Your losses can be infinite because, because it, the, stock, the stock can the go stock can to go 500 to a million. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it can never stop. Because so, you have to pay the difference right. back. So basically what happened is this stock that was trading for double digits, you know, under 100 bucks, and even in some cases single digits not mm-hmm. that long ago, went to over $500. And it basically bankrupt this hedge fund. They had to get bailed out. Right. And one of the reasons these Wall Street bets guys and all the people that are tagging along are doing this is because they want to sock it to the hedge funds. Like they don't, a lot of them don't seem to care about the money. They're literally talking about it in terms of we're sticking it to the man. The, the prevailing theme right now on this Monday, February 1st is hold the line. And it's, 
and what they're saying is hold the stock. Don't sell it. Don't take your profits. Hold it. If enough of us hold it, the price won't go down much. It probably won't go up much either, but it still... It still squeezes the shorts. Squeezes these guys. Because, because they, have to, they have to cover their shorts. At some point, their brokerage says, it. it's gone too far the other direction. I need more money. So you buy into your contract at a certain price. And then if it goes too far against you, the, the brokerage will either close your position and take all your money. Or they'll say, we need more money to cover the short. Right. And unlike when you take a position long and you can sit on that for years and years and years, you don't have that luxury when you take a position short because those shorts accrue interest as well. You're taking a loan. Buying, you know, taking a short stock is is taking a loan and there's interest on those loans. And so not only is the is the money you that you're going to owe your broker your broker growing but they're also charging you interest so at some point it has to end and so i've seen numbers that that uh i've i've seen numbers that put the losses on some of these hedge funds that bet against GameStop as as high as 50 billion dollars which is astronomical and we're talking for, about in the course of a of a week. Yeah. GameStop is headed down, but it's at 181.90 still. So it's off of its well, high. It of opened over, it opened this morning at like 325. Yeah, so it's down big time. And it says it's only down 43 today, but my feeling in all this is that well, let's let's so why is this important cuz a lot well, here, of you probably don't don't care about the stock market. What well, you got to know bringing it up is that that in that's the, how the secret combination is cashing out the secret combination and jerking us around right and also they revealed themselves because in the wake of all of this it, it garnered a ton of attention and what happened was that robin hood which is a sort of builds themselves as an everyman broker they were one of the first to eliminate the uh commission for a, a trade which meant that regular people as long as they met the other government regulations could become day traders or or more frequent traders and could could invest a little bit of money and turn that into a lot of money uh, just using your smartphone and it's sort of their their whole idea was democratizing the the stock market and so that was their marketing right that was the marketing now there's some details there that I don't quite fully understand about the way they do that and the way that they actually are, are gaming the system themselves. But anyway, in the wake of these regular, supposedly regular people on Wall Street bets making millions of dollars off of these shorts and and bankrupting some important, you know, as they suppose, hedge funds in the process <laughs> and, and sticking it to them. Well, in the process of that, the Wall Street Washington, the Wall Street Washington cartel and syndicate with the bootlickers in the press, the financial press, have come out to to not only demonize the Wall Street bets guys and to, to paint them as financial terrorists. Terrorists, and, domestic and, terrorists. And people yeah. who, who, who are... All they're doing is engaging in commerce. And these people who are co- trying to collapse the system, uh, never mind that what they did was exactly what the hedge funds do all the time. In fact, a lot of times these big companies and banks and hedge funds are called market movers because they they have the power and the capital to move stocks up and down 
as much or as quickly as they want. And all they do is collude together and say, we're going to do this, and they all do it, and the stock goes up, and then they all get rich. And then they can say, we're all going to do this, and then they do it, and the stock goes down, and they all get rich. Well, that's just what some guys on the internet did. Mm -hmm. And so the government, there's stories and sources that claim that the Biden White House reached out to Robin Hood and said, shut this down. Regardless of where the pressure came from, Robin Hood banned their clients from buying GameStop stock, which is an enormous breach of contract. That means the only thing that can happen to the price is it goes down because you can only sell. Right. And so they did allow them. They said, you can sell it, but you can't buy it. And even today, they only were allowing people to buy a one single share, which is the same as not same being as able saying to buy it. saying you can't buy it, yeah. And so you had this massive propaganda marketing campaign from the financial press and people like Jim Cramer, you know, Mad Money. He's built a personality of, mm-hmm. of doing exactly what the Wall Street Bets guys did. He pumps and dumps. Mm-hmm. He gets on TV and says, I really like this stock. It's going to do great things. This is a good fundamental company. And, I, and they'll have the CEO on to promote himself mm-hmm. or he'll do the opposite this company's trash and, and that affects people's brains out there who especially yeah, if you think he's not involved in trades on these r- deal he's making right, money right left and, and right and so the bottom line is that the big powerful forces that collude against regular people and manipulate the system and and run all of this criminal activity were laid bare by this regardless of the motivations or the backgrounds or anything like that of the people of wall street bets they exposed the system they exposed what we all suspect or that it's rigged that it's rigged it's rigged against the everyday guy by the people like the dylan reed company it's rigged by them against you and they're when you look at the stock market when you see that a stock is valued like uh, I don't know what Amazon's valued at today. It's probably like six, eight hundred, a thousand dollars per share. I think it's over two grand. Is it over it's, two grand? It's, it's one of the big ones that hasn't been split for some reason. Let's let's see. We've got Amazon, AMZN. Holy cow! It's a three thousand three hundred and forty-nine dollars stock. Okay, and Amazon, of course, is one of the biggest companies in the world. Uh, the point it, is that Amazon's also profited obscenely over the last year with the coronavirus. Right. So they are beneficiaries. Kibono, they're beneficiaries of this. What's their market cap? Where does it even say? Um, shares outstanding. 500 million shares times thousands. So we're we're close to a trillion dollars. Oh, one point six trillion dollars. Yeah, I think company. they're number two behind Apple. Okay. So, far as so they're a one point six trillion dollar company. But that doesn't mean that everybody that owns Amazon has $1.6 trillion total to split between themselves because the minute that it starts to go down, that market cap goes down because the, everybody transacts in U.S. dollars, right? So it's, it's, it's imaginary wealth because once everybody tries to spend it... It's paper gains. Yes, yeah, so they have... So this is what Catherine Austin Fitz is so good at. She's explaining how they pump the stock up so they can dump it to the right people. Not everybody is going to make a trillion dollars on that. There's probably a few people that are going to make many, many billions of dollars if they, if everybody started selling Amazon right now. 
Some people would make a few billion dollars and everybody else would start losing money progressively until the very last people mind, have a stock that's worth a hundred bucks. When you, when you buy a stock, you're, you're buying it from a seller. You're buying it from somebody or some entity. It's not just out there. And when you sell it, you're selling it to somebody. Mm-hmm. There's times when I've tried to sell a stock or a, a, you know, a, a batch of stocks, say 50 shares. And, and nobody would buy them. And only a partial order went through. Like I sold 35 of those. And because that's just, the, it's, it's supply it's just and demand. the nature of the beast. Yeah. And, and usually, or, or it would be a couple orders. Like one would be 25 and then a minute later it'd be some stocks are more, some stocks are more easily transferred than others. When there's a high demand, they're easily transferred. And when there's not. And in theory, they're limited. There's a limited supply of them, which gives them value. In theory. In theory. But but these companies are always issuing more shares into just, the market. It's, that's why I called it a printing press. Right. Because they recognize that they are not buying and holding for eternity all of their shares. They're siphoning off as much as they can and there's, to there's, use it for their other endeavors. There's been talk of GameStop doing just that, issuing a bunch a bunch more stocks, which will drive the price down because they would issue those new stocks at, say, 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what happened today. Maybe that's why the price plummeted. I don't know. What we're getting at is that it's a big club and we ain't in it. And the one thing I didn't explain, tying all the pieces together from the Dylan Reed and Co. story, it's important to recognize the Bushes were in cahoots with the Clintons. You had the Bush White House from 1980 to 1992. Now, I didn't misspeak there. 69 days into the Reagan presidency, Ronald Reagan was, there was an assassination attempt on his life by a guy named John Hinckley, who was a close family friend of the Bush family. Now, they say he's crazy, but come on. He and, might be, but and who put him up to it? We, we were talking about this earlier. When in America, <laughs> I, I, I forgot to even mention this. So if you've listened this long, you finally get the punchline. In America, when the first in command dies, second in command takes his place. And that's exactly what happened. Within half an hour, George Bush had ruled out the possibility of an inside job. And he took control of the American government. I think he, he ran it for 12 years because Reagan was afraid for his life at that point. I mean, they, they had an assassination attempt on his life. And uh, the issue with the Iran-Contra scandal, which broke in the 86, 87 range, was not whether Reagan really knew about it, but was whether the office of the vice president really knew about it because he was in charge of the National Security Council and everything. And everybody knew where the real power was. Uh, in fact, in order for Reagan to sail so smoothly through his election process, the Republican Party structured his administration so that George Bush would be in control of all of it. And that was part of the deal. That's why, that's why he was so well accepted as, uh, as a Republican. And then he, he was very well accepted by the media and handily beats Carter. And then in, in 84, Walter Mondale only won one state, Minnesota, Minnesota, which is his home state. And so, so anyway, but, but Bush was running the White House. And remember, while the CIA was engaged, and by the way, he was a former CIA director. Yeah. And, uh, and his dad was too. Yeah. So he, um, this, this, these drugs were being flown in by Barry Seal through Arkansas. Who, who's from Arkansas? Who was the former governor of Arkansas? <laughs> hmm. Okay. He played saxophone on Arsenio Hall. Oh. And, uh, he the guy becomes that's the married next, to Hillary Clinton. Right. The next president of the United States 
is the guy that comes out of Arkansas. And, and everybody, I remember when I was a kid, it was like, why is George Bush just rolling over here? He's, he's the incumbent president. He's just presided over a successful military operation in uh, the first Gulf War. And then he loses to this unknown dude who everybody just seems to love. We also had the Berlin Wall came down under H.W., didn't yeah. it? And it was, I was like, he had a lot of nobody, momentum. A, 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 and, the, and the only thing the press had on him was, read my lips, no new taxes. Well, they blame they like to blame Ross Perot. You remember Ross Perot? Oh, yeah. He, he, he did split That's a some good point. right-wing Republican I'm forgetting Ross votes. Perot. I'm forgetting Ross Perot. You're absolutely right. And that was... Uh, perhaps part of the issue, but who induced Ross Perot to run? Of course. And, and, and what and, Texas oil man, yeah. Ross Perot. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> and so, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on here that, uh, you know, we could spend days and days unraveling. But the point is Bush and Clinton appeared to be mortal enemies in 1992 during the campaign. And then we find out later they're like lovey dovey, uh, philanthropists. I mean, after the Clinton administration, during this, the first Bush administration, remember Haiti, remember how they, they're always getting together for these cause celebras. And, um, then of course, George Bush's son is the next president. And right. then, and then you get the Obama administration, which is full of Clinton officials. You've got Eric Holder, who was the former uh, attorney general, deputy attorney general. And you've got Rahm Emanuel, former Clinton chief of staff. You've got Hillary Clinton, who's the secretary of state. I mean, it's just well, and Biden, it's the same people. Biden is, is Obama 2.0. 2.0 which or 3.0. Is Clinton, which is Clinton 3.0. Yeah, it's the same people. Yeah. And, and there's, it goes back to our revolving door. And it's they the were in, integrally involved in the drug the trade and, and then in, in managing 9-11 and uh, all the security companies. I mean, the, the relations uh, between the Bush family and the industries that evolved out of 9-11 or that were providing security for the towers or whatever. I mean, they're always at the scene of the crime telling us that they're managing the the law enforcement activities there. But with their flattery, they gain the hearts of the people. That's us. That's us. That's us. And the minds, the hearts and minds of the people. And where they can't use flattery, they'll just beat you. They'll just beat you into submission. By the way, last week I said that the beatings will continue until morale improves. Mm -hmm. Was a 1984 reference? I don't think it is. <laughs> okay. I got to set the record straight. I think it came from, I couldn't, I couldn't find where it came from. I think it might have come from like an old, uh, uh, like German, uh, so where they were making fun of Nazis or something like that. Oh, okay. I'm trying. Like well, Hogan's Heroes. Listeners, yeah, Hogan's Heroes is great. Uh, listeners out there, please forgive us for our faults and errors here. If there are faults in this record, they are the faults of men, mine and Bobby's. But the the truth is the truth. We need to reconcile with the truth, and we need to realize there's a secret combination that's gotten above us, and. Uh, it is a tough thing to disassociate yourself from it, like Catherine Austin Fitz explains, because it is so interwoven into the fabric of our society that, you know, what, so, what can we do? But the first thing is wake up and recognize it. And what can we do? I think we've talked about talking about it. We've talked about repentance. I think from uh, practical, everyday things, it's hard to like not buy Nabisco products, for example, or it's hard not to shop at Walmart or Amazon or have Netflix or the internet or a car or clothing or a house <laughs> or any of these other things. <laughs> you know, I was talking to somebody said, somebody asked me if this little 
phone pouch with a magnet in it or something would block the tracking of our phone. It's like, well, no, of course not. And I thought, what would you have to do nowadays to really, really go off the grid? And I don't think it's possible because you wouldn't be able, you would have to live in a place where there's no property tax, where you can't, where you, where you'd you can have to be self-sufficient on a cabin that you built that isn't connected to any water, electricity, heat. But you need Federal any, Reserve notes to pay your property tax. Right. That's why you just have to find some, some land somewhere that no one cared about, so, which is nowhere anymore, as you pointed mm-hmm. out earlier. You couldn't have internet, credit cards. You couldn't even probably have cash because you would have to someone would have to pay you that cash it's impossible it's now. an awful situation it's a it's impossible now to escape what 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 we've become and that's okay because maybe the best idea isn't to try to escape it but to create something better within it and to maybe that means toppling it like wall street bets guys are thinking that they're doing and maybe they are but Wall Street and Washington are going to find a way to come out on top. And I do. I think we may hear that these guys that are bragging about making it big on the GameStop thing, these regular people who are bragged about becoming millionaires, we probably hear about them having their assets seized here before too long. Well, avalanche, avalanche. And they'll, be I wanna, a, they'll be accused of insider uh, knowledge or something stupid. Sure, but avalanche. That's that's. We got to go back to the avalanche uh, model of uh 2021 and and what's happening in the world today. I'm going to read the last paragraph from Catherine Austin Fitz or one of the last paragraphs from her exposé here and maybe this would be a good thing to end on. Uh but here's what she says. She says, "Here is my prediction for the new world order. I don't know when, I don't know where. I don't know how many satellite systems, electromagnetic weapons, subliminal programming broadcasters, computer hackers, bioweapons labs, cocaine plantations, and how much environmental destruction they will enlist along the way. I don't know how many many patents on fundamental life processes that Monsanto will claim sufficient to not let me cough without paying them a fee. Is that prophetic? I mean, literally, we have now commoditized the common cold wasn't really Monsanto, but she's... But anyway. Monsanto does have a presence in the Biden administration. Monsanto right. executives. Yeah, but it's not... It's But, it, but the point about not being on. able to she's, cough without... Right. I mean, come on. Okay. I don't know how many people the New World Order will reduce to poverty, assassinate, and torture before they fail. I just know that they will fail because ultimately large complex systems cannot be held together by greed, technology, and fear alone. Suspicion, lawlessness, and smallness of mind ultimately cause implosion from within. Well said, Catherine. Wow. And I'll, I'll, I'll fi- uh, sign us off by reminding you that the Book of Mormon teaches us about these secret combinations, and it also gives us the formula to defeat them. And the formula is liberty and God. Be on the side of liberty and of God and sit back. If you're on those sides, just sit back and watch the implosion. I will say this too: don't burn the bridges with your friends and family. Okay, the 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 we're com- going to need each other before co- this thing's the over. The cabal's trying to get us to to destroy our personal relationships by making those personal relationships illegal, <laughs> by, by by making us fear each other. Don't do that. You we need each other, and we're gonna we're gonna have to get each other's backs. 
through, at some point and in some way through all of this, whether that's a physical and monetary collapse or if it's a social collapse or if it's just people that need to know that there are others out there that think and see the world the way that, that you do. So have, have your, have your friends and keep them. (laughs) Don't listen to Spencer Cox who tells you that visiting grandma is dangerous. Try to expand and uh, improve and help and bless your local, whatever, whatever your personal local circle is, make that better. Focus on that. And finally figure out what your, state epidemiologist makes every year and write a letter to the editor of your local paper and to your legislature and complain about the obscene amount of money that those charlatans are taking home and taking from you. (laughs) All right, cue the music. On that note, uh, (laughs) thanks for listening. Uh, We appreciate if you've you've, uh, listened this long and, and spread the word if it's interesting to you. Thanks. Stay strong. We will see you next time. I'm Bobby Flood. Jordan Bruno. Take care, guys.